VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, December the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the Come On With It edition of Open Line this morning. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, the 14th annual Mummers Festival kicked off on the 26th of November and culminates tomorrow, the 10th of December, with the Mummers Parade. Happens at Bowering Park. Mummering is a fan—it's a fascinating, very unique tradition, whether it be the Jannies or the Mummers, whatever the case may be. They come across now as very fun and festive and playful, albeit with a whiff of mischief about them. The history of Mummers in the province is also quite interesting. So I'm led to believe or to understand that Mummering back in 1860, there was a group or a gang of six ne'er-do-well mummers who did away with the Bay Roberts fisherman. I think his name was Isaac Mercer. Consequently, there was a couple of different really unbelievable uh, controversies, and in fact, in 1863, a massive riot about mummering, including mummers. So the government of the day, they said there are no more masking yourself in public. So the mummers, as was the tradition, unable to be mummers, out and about, in public, masked, of course, because part of the game is you have to guess whether or not that's Billy from out on the hill. So that band lasts for decades. It was reborn in the 1960s, I believe, where the masking band was removed. Now, we've had a lot of talk about mask mandates and whatnot, and now the Mummers are back. So the Mummers Parade is actually quite the spectacle. I don't know how much active mummering goes on in communities these days, whether or not people are willing to, and I guess maybe potentially some smaller communities, willing to open up your doors for the mummers to come in, to have a dance and to have a jar and have a laugh. But the Mummers Parade is tomorrow, but it is quite something to know a bit more about the history of mummers. Very wistful and playful today, maybe not so much over a century ago, but anywho, there you go. All right, Canada's Athlete of the Year has been named. They've been given out what used to be called the Lou Marsh Award since 1936. Now it's called the Northern Star Award. And for the first time in history, a female hockey player has won it, and rightfully so. Before we get to the eventual winner, just listen to some of the athletes who were up for the nod. Tennis player Felix Auger-Aliassime, golfer Brooke Henderson, swimmer Summer McIntosh, speed skater Isabel Weidman, soccer player Alfonso Davies, uh, avalanche defenseman Kale McCarr, BC Lions quarterback Nathan Rourke, and the winner is Marie-Philippe Poulain who is clutched to say the very least. The captain of Canada's women's team, we won an Olympic gold and a world championship in 2022. In the uh, gold medal in Beijing, Marie-Philippe Poulain scored twice in a 3-2 victory over the States in the championship game, finished the tournament scoring with 17 points, only one behind her teammate Sarah Nurse, who was incredible. At the Olympics, she has been a standout. Poulain scored twice and had three points, including the Olympic gold medal winning goal for the third time. Three times she scored the Olympic gold medal winning goal when we beat the States in the final game in Beijing 2022. It's the first time a hockey player has won since 2015 where Carrie Price got the nod. And, of course, Price back in the news today, but unbelievable athlete, talent, hockey player, and Canadian Marie-Philippe Poulain is the Northern Star Award winner athlete of the year. All right, back to a little Christmas stuff. 
So today in 1965, so 57 years ago, for the first time, people were able to sit on their couch and watch A Charlie Brown's Christmas. It made its premiere. Of course, based on the Peanuts comic strip by Charles Schultz. Very small budget, all child actors. And at the time, inside of animation, a laugh track was part and parcel of the end product. In this particular Charlie Brown's Christmas, no laugh track. It was a sort of a bizarre, weird pacing. And, of course, you add in the soundtrack provided by jazz pianist Vince Guaraldi. Everyone thought, including the network and the producers, the directors, that it was going to be a flop. Not so. Won an Emmy, a Peabody Award, and is now absolutely a beloved uh, Christmas tradition. So you know the story. Charlie Brown, depressed despite the fact it's Christmas. Lucy gets in on the action, says Charlie should direct the Christmas play at school, pick out a tree for the event. He, of course, like he always was in the comic strip, derided by his peers. Then Linus gets in on the action and says and tells Charlie about the true meaning of Christmas. It turns around, that dance scene in the end is really quite something. They had that poor little pathetic lowly tree, but he united them all in friendship. The Charlie Brown's Christmas first appeared 57 years ago today. Okay, and this is a cool one. The very first time anybody saw traffic lights was in 1868 on this day. They were installed outside the British Parliament building in London. A fellow named J.P. Knight did it. He was a railway signaling engineer. He used the same mechanism, a waving semaphore arm, like you, you can picture in your mind's eye, used for trains. And at night, they were illuminated by red and green gas lamps. And of course, as we unfortunately know, it seems like traffic lights are just a suggestion as opposed to rules of the road. Yellow, slow down, pre- uh, uh, pre- prepare to stop. Red means stop, not go through, because you just pop the loud pedal a little bit harder. Anyway, traffic lights, 1868. Say good morning, congratulations to Kim and Todd Churchill. Last night, the Human Rights Commission gave out their annual award, and the Churchills were indeed named this year's Human Rights Award winners. You've heard the story. We've had uh, Kim and Todd on this program many times, advocating for deaf children, especially when their first language is American Sign Language. They just went through a human rights uh, tribunal as well, and so fighting for their son Carter and everybody else in the deaf community who needs the required supports in schools. So congratulations to Kim and Todd Churchill. Been a long road, and a road that is not yet complete. Okay, we are now getting and hearing some numbers regarding absenteeism in the schools. We Everybody sees it, regardless of where you are in the province. We're seeing a lot of sick people. You know, the resurgence of seasonal influenza and RSV and COVID is real. Especially when we look at the Janeway and the fact that they're seeing so many patients each day in the emergency rooms. So the absentee rates are out now for November. Uh, Let's see here. It's been the highest it's been in any November in the previous three years. The rate for absenteeism in the K-12 system is 14.3% higher than any other November we've seen in the past three years. About 9,000 students are missing school on any given day. Teachers' absentee rate is about 6%, which I think is encouraging. I thought it would be much higher than that. But the anticipation is that the absentee rate will continue to soar while we get through this particular spike in the respiratory illness season. It boils down to a variety of things. Because of the fits and starts and the hybrid model and schools closed and the concept of learning loss, and now with the teachers trying to navigate, ensuring that all their students are able to absorb the curriculum the best they can, to be able to be prepared for the next grade and or to leave high school. So where we go with that and what that means for ongoing operations and for the children themselves, and if you have a child home ill today or unwell, we sure hope that they are recovering and they're on the mend and back at it 
Tut Swit. So if you have a child in school, you want to talk about what you're seeing and hearing from any of those angles. The learning loss concept has long bothered me. In other provinces, they've had a deep dive looking at learning loss, adjusted curriculum to reflect what they're seeing in their own provinces. Not so sure how much we've done here. And, of course, I'm married to an educator, and so I, every time I say anything that's not in glowing reference to it, I get in a bit of trouble. But so be it, because this is important stuff, right? Today marks 1,001 days since the first COVID test positive here in the province, and it has been an extraordinarily long 1,001 days. So the first case is on the 14th of March of 2020, and we've been through it all. The lockdowns and the masks and the schools and the daycare clothes and the tight 20s and the Atlantic bubble and the travel restrictions, it's been a tough slog, and we all know it to be true. Hopefully we're in the endemic stage and we get through this cold and flu season, but looking back, it has been quite something. And, you know, you talk about things like the vaccine and trying to curb the transmission rates, what have you. It was actually today, in 1979, that the World Health Organization declared that smallpox had been eradicated. It's the first and only human disease, uh, transmitted disease, to ever be eradicated to date, and that happened in 1979. Okay, what's this? So sticking with uh, youth, potentially in school. And this is data coming from the Canadian Institute for Health Information, talking about the number of young Canadians who have tried to access mental health services in the last six months. For many, not easy. Three out of five people between the ages of 12 and 24 with self-reported early needs were able to get the mental health services and or substance use services. The other side of that is quite obvious, is that two out of five were unable to get them. Now, there's a further breakdown by gender, which is interesting. Half of the boys and young men were able to access care, for, for example. That's compared to 80% of transgender non-binary people who were able to access care. She notes that men in general have less health-seeking behavior, which has long been problematic. Young men, men of all ages, if you feel it, there's no... It doesn't chink away at your, your masculinity to look for help when you need it, and that's long been the case with men, but those numbers just reflect what we already knew. And inside the schools, for another couple of comments. So we know the important work that Kids Eat Smart does. It's just amazing how much... Uh, effort goes in and how many meals they provide every single day. Breakfast is for any child who wants it as they get to arrive at school. The School Lunch Association, also a terrific organization. They provide some 15,000 hot lunches per day in the schools where they are operating. They have a pay-as-you-go or pay-what-you-can model. They're asking the families to please pay $4 for your lunch. And if you can't, so be it. Grab the lunch. Last year at this time, there was about 800 children who were unable to pay for their lunch. This year, that number has gone all the way to 1,900. Again, very much reflective of what we're seeing. So if you are looking around for a charity maybe this holiday season, maybe the School Lunch Association could be a place for your money. What do you think? How are we doing on the phone there, David? I have a bit of a sore throat this morning. All right, where am I going here? What does this say? Okay. Cyber attack stuff. It's been a while. The fall of 2021, we found out the Meditech system, the network drive, had been compromised. We still really don't know much about it. I'm sure the province has received cyber and legal advice as to be tight-lipped about who's responsible, whether or not there was a ransom demanded. A couple of curious things about it. So now some additional 31,500 patients or employees and employees, they've had their personal or health information taken from the network drive. They go on to say that nothing nefarious has happened with the information yet, 
But that brings the total of people impacted by the breach to over 58,000. It's 58,200. That's more than 10% of the people in the province. You know, we'll talk about the transparency that's required, and I get it. I mean, I want the information, and I want uh, the questions that we ask to be answered. I wonder would we be doing the province more harm than good if we had the answers to who was responsible, whether or not there was a ransom. It has cost the province over $16 million to address the issue. Remember, they paid $200,000 for PR advice on this front, which is really quite something. But what do we do with the information even if we had it? I'd like to have it, but again, what would we do if we knew more? So the province is going to continue to offer credit monitoring through Equifax. So if you are... Uh, an employee, it's up to five years for those of you who have had your financial information or social insurance number accessed, and two years for the others. Okay. Uh, if you've been one of those folks contacted by the province to say that your info is in the hands of the hackers, let's know what you're thinking, feeling, and seeing. Let's go. All right. We're expecting to have a conversation with the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, Dr. Chris Luscom, here soon. A variety of things we can talk to Dr. Luscom about. But the new hot-button issue that the NLMA and doctors are really frustrated by, and rightfully so, is the disparity in pay for them compared to how much we're paying PhoneMed, the 811 system. Now, we all know that 811 has been important. It was born out of necessity, and throughout the pandemic, the volume of calls has been extraordinary. But there's a couple of things that the doctors are talking about, and we'll see and get some more information from Dr. Luscombe here in short order. So, $31 million for phone med between 2022 and 2027. The expected volume of calls is massive, 72,000 calls per year. That's $82 per call in the first year. It goes all the way to $92 per call call in the final year. There is a cut uh, rate after 72,000 calls has been eclipsed. Compare that to the monies afforded to the doctors. $37 for routine in-person appointment. $47 for a virtual appointment, and yes, there's, for some reason, a cap on how many appointments can be held by a doctor in the run of a day, and that's capped at 40. So, it's hard to really understand, and to hear Minister Osborne talk about the comprehensive suite and the 24-7 offering at 811, it really feels like a distinction without a difference to me, and I'm sure the same feeling for doctors, and it becomes even more concerning as the taxpayer to know that well, we don't have a distinct breakdown or a specific breakdown, so I call 811, and their advice is to see a doctor within 24 hours or go to the emergency room or whatever the case may be. So at that point, we're going to have an MCP billing coming from a doctor and the money we pay, the $82, to 811 just to be told to go see the doctor. So that redundancy seems unnecessarily expensive. And where we go from here, now that we have a contractual arrangement with phone med for the next five years, what can even be done? Very likely not much. But we'll hear from Dr. Luscombe, and if you want to chime in on that, because that's an important story. If the overall impact of this revelation is that family doctors feel even further undervalued, adding to their frustration, will that see more and more doctors leave for the so-called greener pasture? Will that conversation and word of mouth make it even more difficult for Dr. Megan Hayes and others at the regional health authorities to recruit and to retain a doctor? So this is a trickle-down effect that is not just whether or not you're an MD and looking at the disparity in the rate of pay, but what that impact might be for the general public, yet to be fully understood, but the stories and the social media threads I hear and read 
uh, that include doctors, is they are furious. So we'll see how that unfolds here today. And since the story, uh, Ariana Kellen's work about the fact that we don't have licensed home inspectors, since that was published, the horror stories are coming in fast and furious. Just like when we had the concern with the diamonds out in Catalina. Go to sell the family home to find out that they don't own the land. It's a crown land issue. Then we saw a tsunami of stories alike the diamonds. Same thing here with home inspectors. Boy. So only two provinces in the country require a real officially licensed home inspector. That's Alberta and British Columbia. There's no reason we shouldn't impose it here. Unless you're some huge muckety-muck, the biggest investment and spend you're ever going to make in this life is when you buy your own home. And to know that we have potentially shoddy work being done by folks who are able to present themselves as a certified home inspector, but in fact there's no such thing in this province, end result has been, as opposed to avoid the lemon of a house, or to factor in what required expenses may be as you evaluate if you can afford your monthly mortgage payment and the repairs, People who have looked at the report said, okay, I can handle this. This feels like a good investment. This feels like a place I want to live. And lo and behold, you move in and you find out the hard way that there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of costly work to be done. So the province should really, really get at this. It's only in the last few years they modernized the Real Estate uh, Act in the House of uh, Assembly. It's time to do something here. You can't have people paying for a service, crossing their fingers, and hope they don't get burned down the line. And speaking of burned, what a sight with some of the images we're seeing from Bryn Mawr, Baird Cottage here in St. John's. A controversial piece of our heritage. Well, I think it's about 160 years old. Gone. Destroyed by fire. Now, there was no power flowing to the house. It has been the hangout for a bunch of hoodlums or people getting on the beer or what have you. There's been a lot of discussion about how much it costs to keep a heritage property in heritage condition. But now the city, we've seen these examples, it's not simply because of fire, but some heritage edifices have been torn down. We have a very limited inventory of heritage properties. We call ourselves the oldest city in North America, when in fact we're not, but we use that title anyway. But old also has to include the preservation of heritage. Once it's gone, it's never coming back. And there goes Baird Cottage. Absolutely awful. There are certain communities in the province do a great job with the preservation of heritage buildings. S- the city of St. John's, it feels like there's a lot of talk about it, but not a lot of action, not a lot of preservation, not even a whole lot of conversation, I would imagine, if you were, were being honest with each other, but Bryn Mawr, gone. A couple of quickies before we get to your calls. This is a combination good news, bad news story. So the Liquor Commission, the NLC, reporting an increase in their earnings for the second quarter, which ended on the 1st of October of this year. Net earnings over $58 million is up $1.1 million or 1.9% over the same period in the previous year. The dividend, which is important for many, the dividend paid to the uh, provincial government was over $60 million for the quarter. It's $5.5 million more than Q2 in 2021. We saw a spike in sales of cannabis and alcohol during the pandemic. The Liquor Commission thought that it would quote-unquote normalize as we came out of the pandemic. If that's where we are, you could put the label on it as you see fit. Alcohol sales for the quarter, $82.4 million, up 3.3%. Most of that that spike in the ready-to-drink sales and the beer beer that was sold. Cannabis up, an increase of 10.2% over $17.7 million. So 
you know, the good news is the money is flowing to the golfers. The bad news is the consumption rate. And on that front, you know, we'll further add to how do we even discuss the potential to privatize offerings like the NLC, as was recommended by Dame Moya Green, as probably recommended recommended by the Rothschild Report, which is sacred cow. Can't have a look at that one. And, you know, the confusion will be, well, it's a money-making agency, so why would we sell something that makes money? But even if you sell it, we'll still be able to harvest the taxes for the sale of all the alcohol beverages. So... I still think there's more to discuss on that front, but the NLC numbers are in. Uh, Okay, let's get to the break here quick. A couple of good news ones. Price of fuel down across the board. That's a feel-good, even though it's still quite dearly expensive. The biggest drop of gasoline down over 7.5 or 7.6 cents per liter. Diesel down over 7 cents. Furnace oil down over 7 cents. Stove oil down almost 6 cents. Propane, which never sees sees much of a wiggle, uh, decreased 1.5 cents per liter and at five o'clock this evening again today here on your vocm a little call in with santa just to brighten the late afternoon uh we're on twitter we're vocm open line follow us there Our email address is openline at vocm.com let's come back and have a great show you know the deal that only happens when you're in the queue don't go away welcome back to the show let's go line number two diane you're on the air good morning patty i called about the uh 811 thing yes ma'am i was appalled at the amount that they're paying them. I'm quite sure pharmacies should be allowed to fill the prescriptions. They know their customers. I bet over 85% of the calls going into 811 are for that reason. There's so many people with no doctors. And I think the government could come up with some other way of letting people know what doctors are taking patients. Well, I mean, the pharmacists have long been saying that they can do much more than they're currently allowed to do. I tell this one story all the time. The pharmacist on uh, Belle Island, uh, Kara O'Keefe, this is over a year ago she posted this, that she has a customer or a client that uh, if she was allowed to uh, refill the person's prescription without having to get the approval of a doctor, it took two trips to the family doctor, three trips to emergency before she finally was able to refill that prescription. She could have done it in 10 minutes. That's right. It's frustrating. Yeah, I mean, whoever's trained to do whatever in healthcare, whether it be a nurse practitioner or an LPN or a physician's assistant or a pharmacist, let's let them do what they're trained to do. Uh, it just seems, and I'm not in the healthcare world, but it just seems to me that if we did that, things would ease up a little bit. Wait lists would shorten. People would be able to get the care they need. That's right. I called 811 uh, the 1st of December. The earliest appointment they could give me for a phone to get a refill is the for tomorrow the tenth is it tomorrow's the tenth yep yeah for, so i'm trying to call and cancel that now today i'll go walk walk over to the walking clinic and freeze up for an hour because i don't have a car i'll have to stand in line but i'd rather stand in line get cold rather than call 811 again if i ever call that again i'm dying well and, let's hope you call me before you make that call well i hope that all the people in Newfoundland realize that's a waste of friggin' money. It's been serviceable for some, but there's lots of stories I hear about long waits, waiting for a call back, you know, sitting there staring at the telephone, waiting for a call back, and then maybe the only uh, information you get or direction you get is go see a doctor. Well, if I knew that was going to be the answer, I wouldn't have been waiting by the phone all day. <laughs> if you had a doctor, you wouldn't be there to them? Pretty much. 
And then the next thing, I'd like to explain one way people end up homeless. Okay. My son had a heart attack and a stroke. And since the... Didn't treat him because he smoked weed. Now he's developed a, a leaky valve. Now, since he was sick, I know of two alcoholics, two heavy smokers, and two, three in their 80s, late 70s and 80s that have had the operation they wouldn't do on him. They all have private insurance. Oh, and one was a diabetic. So if you, if anybody thinks there's no two-tier system on this island, they're looking out for rose-covered glasses. So you're saying Diane is two-tiered because a doctor refused treatment because the person smoked marijuana? Yes. Look, for starters, inside the oath, this bit about do no harm, to turn away people because they smoke or they drink or they're obese or whatever is the epitome of doing harm. You know, right. it shouldn't be based on your own preferences as a doctor. When someone presents, you think they should just just try to help. So I hadn't thought of that with uh, Dr. Luscombe coming up, but I, I'll put that on my list because I know people in the exact same boat. This one buddy of mine who is not only a smoker, but he's pretty seriously overweight, and he got turned away from the first doctor he was able to get as a family doctor. Like, how can that possibly be? Yeah, really. Yeah. Anyway, but let me add that. To continue with my story about my son. Oh, sure. Go ahead. He's approved for Newfoundland and Labrador housing. He lives in the same building I do. He's been approved for two years. So now they've put out a thing that you have to have uh, tenants insurance or your, we got eviction notices for the 28th of December. And every time I've called housing to try to get him a different place, they say, well, you got to put him for a transfer. So I did that, and I ticked off Center City. So then they said, I just want him out of here so he doesn't get evicted. And uh, they said, well, you have to have put him for a transfer. He put him for the Center City only. I said, all right. So I dropped off another application for transfer. I just didn't put anything in there, St. John's or something. Why would they want to transfer? They're not even subsidizing them. I don't know. Can't they just give them a place to live? I don't know if it's as simple as, as that. There's a pretty long wait list, and people have very specific needs, like they can't be on the second floor or... Well, that's going to be him now because his legs are given out. Oh, no. But, I mean, he's been approved for two years, so no one can tell me that there wasn't a place in two years. So if he ends up out on the street without his belongings, what then? Well, good question. What then is a major problem if that's what the outcome is? You know, the wait list includes a variety of things. People have very specific needs, but we're still trying to get some specific numbers about how many units are still boarded up and how long they've been boarded up. Because if we've got a lot, let's just use a round number, 100 people or 1,000 people on a wait list, and there's 100 units boarded up, we could be dealing with the wait list a lot quicker if we could understand why some of these units are not being used. Maybe they're dilapidated to the point where you can't live in them anymore. Maybe there's some issue with timing to get repairs done. But it seems to me there's been an awful lot of them boarded up for an awful long time. So that doesn't help the wait list at all. Uh, last word to you, Diane, before I have to go. No, that's it. I'm just disgusted. Appreciate the time. I wish you well. 
All right. Bye-bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, he's Dr. Chris Luscombe. He's in the queue. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Join us on line number three is the president of the NLMA. That's Dr. Chris Luscombe. Dr. Luscombe, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing good. Thanks. So before we get into the newfound issue between family doctors and phone med, there's long been a concern inside the ranks about how doctors get paid anyway. Describe how you get paid and what you think is the better alternative to the current structure. So currently, Patty, most family physicians would be paid by a fee-for-service model. And essentially, that means that with each interaction with the patient, there's a fee code assigned to that and billed with each encounter. And the fee-for-service model is increasingly becoming uh, less common across the country because it, it doesn't necessarily focus on what the patient might need that day. There's, you're, you're being paid for just an interaction. Some interactions, as you can imagine, you know, maybe should be done virtually or maybe more complex and require more time. And the fee codes often haven't really captured that. So the movement is towards uh, more, uh, more of a blended capitation model. And, and I know that sounds complicated, but essentially that is when you attach a patient to your practice. So when you're connected with a family doctor, there's sort of an annual payment given to the physician. And then in addition to that, when the physician provides a service, there's a small payment. So it gives this sort of guarantee. If you've got a thousand patients, you sort of have an annual guarantee for for your income, and then your then the, uh, the that fee code is 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 much smaller part of your practice. So it gives much greater uh, income stability and much more flexibility for physicians. And that's sort of the national trend. Because we know that the doctors in their own clinic is pretty much their own private business with the associated uh, payment of their staff, the overhead and equipment and the like. So okay, let's get into phone med. We've all heard the numbers, you know, $82 per call to phone med, and for an in-person visit with a doctor, 37 42 I believe it is, for a uh, 47 for a virtual appointment, and then a cap therein. How do you factor in that 811 was pretty much born of necessity? And when the RFP went out, only one company replied, that being phone med. I know the numbers are frustrating, but before we get into the numbers and the disparity, how do you factor that into your reaction, your commentary, knowing that if there was a requirement for 811 and there was only one company came forward, what do you think should have been done in that circumstance? So the first thing I want to clarify, Patty, is that the contract encompasses many services. And many of those services, I totally agree with, are essential, and they wouldn't really parallel our physician services. But the concern I have is this virtual care aspect that's in the contract. And we got to ask ourselves, you know, why did we find ourselves in a position where we had to be looking to contract virtual care services, uh, you know, through such a contract? And I would make the argument that, you know, if people do not have family physicians, then that really lends itself to requiring this type of solution. So I think that you know, there's aspects of this, this service that, that clearly are outside of, you know, physician services. However, there's been a, you know, they, they went seeking to deliver certain virtual care services, which were really, in my opinion, come from the fact that we have a profound physician shortage, family physicians in particular, and if people can't access family physicians, then it necessitated this. 
So I think this is this was a fix to a problem that really, you know, should have had more attention. Do you have any understanding as to why there's a cap on virtual appointments? Because in one hand, we're told to anticipate more and more use of virtual care. Then the college will say that even if you have not been practicing in person, but have been active uh, with virtual care, that that does, does, pardon me, doesn't qualify for accreditation or licensing. If the catch-22 is kind of hard to break down and to understand, do you understand why there's a cap on numbers? I think you'd really have to ask, ask the government about why their position is to have a cap. From the perspective of the NLMA, this is very much about delivering the right care to the patient in, at the right time. And so because the pandemic, there was obviously this major increase in virtual care utilization, and we saw it peak at approximately 80% of visits in the depth of the pandemic were virtual. But we're starting to see through, uh, through our numbers that virtual care is, is going down to approximately half of what physicians are providing. And we're all trying to understand what is that right mix. And it's, it's very arbitrary when we say we're just going to put a cap on something. Because really, we have to have a better understanding around, you know, how does that cap affect, say, a physician in a rural community where they now have to, uh, you know, direct patients to come to travel, uh, to come in when normally, if, if there was no cap, they may say this can be done virtually. So, you know, we have a lot of concerns about the cap. And, and really, I think the practical discussion has to be how do we ensure that the right care is delivered, you know, in the right modality. Do we have any updated numbers regarding family doctors and the number of people in the province without one? We've been using 125,000 for a long time. Has that changed either upwards or downwards? Yeah, I don't have that data available to me currently, but I know it definitely hasn't gone down. It definitely has not gone down. Okay. In real terms, we know that... You know, Dr. Megan Hayes, probably the worst or the toughest job in the province to recruit and retain healthcare workers. What do you think realistically is the impact of these numbers that we've now revealed with, regarding the contract with PhoneMed and an already frustrated group of family doctors? What do you think this means? Well, you know, in my own household, my wife just closed her family practice in the past week. And that's just absolutely unbelievable that she found herself in that position. So none of these issues in isolation obviously led to her to do that. But there are many other physicians that are contemplating this and are, and are just barely hanging on. And so, you know, I think that in particular, those physicians that are working very hard, they're trying to hold the system together, they're hoping to get, you know, more support moving forward, you know, hearing the fact that those types of investments are made outside of medical services are profoundly discouraging and demoralizing, and it really makes physicians wonder, you know, how invested is Newfoundland in having services delivered by family doctors? You know, how concerned are we for the recruitment and the retention of physicians? So this, this is what I'm hearing from the members, that they feel really demoralized that, that you know, investment is being made elsewhere as opposed to into, into family medicine. Where and how should the government spend or incentivize? Because there's been a suite of incentives offered, whether it be for expats to return home and for people to set up in rural and have a full patient roster with a bonus of $100,000 after three years, those types of things. What else can be done? Because for some doctors, maybe it's all about money. For others, maybe not. So the government has done a variety of things. Where are they coming up short? Well, you know, I think 
by far for most physicians, it's not all about the money. And if you choose a career in family medicine, you know, these people are not planning to be rich doctors, right? They're choosing it because they care about that type of practice and, and they're passionate about it. And so I think that there's multiple things that can be done. We have to be, you know, working through changing that compensation model. I think that virtual care, you know, is, is, is here to stay. So we really need to find a reasonable solution around how virtual care is supported, uh, you know, by all physicians and, and uh, making sure that the mechanisms by which they're compensated for that, that works. Um, you know, we need to be able to look at locum supports and relief. You know, what we hear from a lot of physicians in, in family medicine in particular is they're burnt out, they're exhausted, and they, and they can't take any leave. So, you know, what are the ways that we can, we can support them and give them relief? And, and I, I think that stabilization of funding, you know, making some, making some uh, decisions around where family physicians are going to fit into, you know, the health accord and some of the, some of the plans of the health accord, you know, are, are things that, that physicians are, are keen to hear about because, you know, that involves team-based care, which can also provide, you know, improvements in care and, and opportunities to work more collaboratively with, with other health care providers. And those models are still being worked through, so there's a lot of insecurity around that also. So I think there's lots of things in the works, uh, but we really got to, you know, we, we really got to put some urgency behind this and, and get things moving. Try to couch this question as best I can. For some healthcare workers, whether it be nurse practitioners, licensed practical nurses, pharmacists, and others, they're trained and accredited and ready to perform a lot more duties than they're currently allowed. Some of the thought in the general public is that there's a hierarchy in healthcare, and doctors may be very likely at the very top of it, and so maybe some territorial protection being offered. So do you think that's a fair assessment, that maybe doctors have a fair bit of power as lobbyists and know as a lobby group, an advocacy group, that they're protecting more and more of their own territory versus trying to allow the maximizing the scope of practice for all other healthcare workers. Is that a fair assessment? Most of the doctors I'm talking to are saying there's more than enough work to go around, Patty. Sure. So we, you know, we want to work in partnership with these other providers to their full scope of practice. And, you know, so we, we, we feel that, that, you know, there's, there's a role for everybody in the system um, you know, where we get concerned is that sometimes it's lost, I think, on people about, you know, what physicians can do and, and what their role is. And physicians feel they need some autonomy also. So, you know, you have a situation where physicians often, you know, carry a lot of liability and, and uh, you know, and, and, and very hard workloads. So, you know, physicians, you know, nationally generally need some degree of autonomy as well. And so some of the concerns we have is how do we enter into these relationships and, and have everybody working you know, to their full scope of practice, but also having some say in, in how that work occurs. You said nationally and used the word locum. What's your position on things like, you know, we've heard from doctors on the mainland that say they'd love to come to Newfoundland and Labrador on a locum, but the paperwork warfare and the cost and the time just makes it not worth their while. 
is it time for some national guidance on things like accreditation and licensing? If you are trained at UBC or at Memorial University, practice in either or province, you should be well equipped to practice wherever you like in the country. Is it time to do away with the provincial boundaries and make one set of national standards so that we can see doctors more mobile? Maybe more locum opportunities will be presented and filled. Because I can never really understand why it's, I'm good enough to practice in Edmonton but not good enough to practice in Grand Falls. I have to say, Patty, I've been very impressed with the Premier and the Department of Health and the College of Physicians and Surgeons in looking at this. And there's also been partnership with Memorial University on this as well. So there's been a, a, a massive amount of energy, I think, the last several months to look at streamlining these processes. But none of us want to have a situation where the quality of those providers is in question or, or, or not adequate. And so there's the, the, the premiers have regular meetings with all these stakeholders, and I've seen a lot of advancement in terms of streamlining this as, as much as we can provincially for sure. And, and part of that, you know, part of that, Patty, also may be that, that there's physicians, you know, there's, there's probably, a, you know, there's definitely, sorry, a, a large pool of physicians that with a little bit of educational support or a little bit of preliminary supervision uh, may be able to work in our system. So those activities are ongoing as well. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. There's lots of opportunities around this. National, you know, national licensure is, is, is definitely being worked on as well. But there's a lot of things within our control provincially that I think that all the partners are working on. Very two quick ones before we let you go. And this is about prescriptions. There's long been awareness about the overprescribing of antibiotics in particular. Those numbers have come back to earth. But, of course, even if I'm a patient and I've diagnosed myself at home with WebMD or something, I go to my doctor and say, I need this. I need this antibiotic. Some antibiotics are being prescribed for things that antibiotics are of no use for. What's your message to doctors? Because it's not much my responsibility as it is the doctor to make sure that the prescription is required, not just demanded and the doctor capitulates, but how and why are we over-prescribing antibiotics? And what's your message? Yeah, I don't have recent data on this, but, you know, obviously it's, it's our opinion, as you said. You know, the physician has to make the decision. And, you know, they write the prescription, they're authorizing, they're authorizing that medication. And I think that a lot of physicians are, are finding themselves in very difficult positions in, in the sense that, you know, when there's poor points of access and, and, and patients are, are, are sick and, and, and desperate, you know, then, then there's obviously, uh, you know, a, a lot of, um, you know, frustration by, by, by patients. And that has to be tempered again with what's clinically indicated. So I just, just want to highlight, I think those are really complicated issues. And it's not as simple, you know, we'd like to think it's a very simple decision about, yes, an antibiotic is needed or it isn't. But there's so much in the gray area. And, and unfortunately, in medicine, there's, there's several areas like that, where there's these gray areas, and we'd, we'd like it to be black and white, but it really comes down to an, to an individual decision with, with, with a lot of variables. If you hear stories about patients who have been turned away from one family doctor or another because they possibly have complex needs, whether they be obese, a smoker, use drugs, drinker, whatever the case may be, and sometimes, and I hear the stories, I'm sure you do too, where the doctor says, no, you're not a patient for me when in fact that person should be the primary patient for whoever that doctor is because they have serious needs and they need to be attended to now. What do you say to your members? What do you say to the general public when they hear stories of, I was turned away because I'm an OB smoker drinker? So I understand that the college expectation would be that you can't do that. 
So, you know, we feel there, there's now a provincial registry by which, you know, patients uh, can be, uh, you know, placed on if they're waiting for a family doctor. And the physicians I'm talking to that are opening practice want to take things just off that registry in order. So there really should not be that, that sort of vetting that you're talking about. And so obviously the NLMA doesn't support that and, uh, and neither does the college. Final word to you, Dr. Luscombe. Any message you'd like to relay? No, I, I just think that, um, you know, I, I really want to pass on to our membership that, you know, we know that, you know, physicians are really hurting, uh, you know, and, and, and just trying to hang in there. And, uh, you know, we, we, we really are trying our best to, to, to try and, and support improvements in the system that's going to work for the government and the patients and the physicians. And, and I think there's sometimes this perception that, you know, the NLMA is going to stand up for every physician in every circumstance. That's definitely not the position of the NLMA. We want the system to work better. You know, we're going through major health transformation with the health accord. You know, we have a major opportunity for us to contribute. We are leaders. We are clinicians. And, uh, and you know, we want our physicians to hold on, but we need some movement. We need support. And, uh, and uh, you know, this, this has just been going on too long. We, we, it's, it's, it's such a crisis. We need this resolved as quick as possible. What's good for doctors that will create a better landscape and improve the numbers of doctors willing to work in the province is good for the government, and it's even better for us. Uh, great to have you on the show, Dr. Luscombe. It's nice to meet you this morning, and I look forward to speak with you again. Thanks so much, Patty. I hope Take you have a good weekend. Same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Dr. Chris Luscombe. He's the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, municipal funding, the MOGs, the operating grants. Let's go. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Dennis O'Keefe, you're on the air. Morning, Paddy. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? Pretty good, boy. Uh, there's a lot of issues on the go today, I must say, between uh, Ottawa, federal government, provincial government. Uh, there's certainly so many issues that uh, people, I think, are razzle-dazzled by by the whole situation, but I wanted to touch on two this morning just briefly and then just give you a bit of information on the municipal operating grants. Yep. The two I'd like to touch on are, I guess you'd call them Grinch Awards. Uh, the first one goes to Canada Post for the huge increase at Christmas time to their postal rates. And, uh, you know, at a time, it's almost like Canada Post is kind of like Nalcor. They have a CEO that earns $500,000 a year, and I'm told that they distributed hundreds of bonuses right across the country, and at the same time, at Christmas time, when people are mailing packages, they hit them with a huge increase. Yeah, that, fuels, oh. that 40% fuel surcharge is a, a whopping big fee to pay on top of every other whopping big fee we have to pay. Oh, isn't it? I mean, and it just contributes to the cost of living and the inflation and all the things that government pays lip service to as to uh, how they're going to bring it under control. Uh, the other Grinch, uh, close runner-up, I would give to the Newfoundland Labrador Liberal MPs who voted for the carbon tax, the increase in the carbon tax. I mean, there's no rationale for what they did. I listened to Minister O'Regan uh, say that he was actually thrilled with the tax. And Minister Hutchings is excited. First time in my life I ever heard politicians say that they were thrilled or excited about a tax that really does nothing other than, again, impact the cost of living, 
again, uh, more hardship on people. Uh, you know, it's fine for Mr. O'Regan to say that, hey, folks, this is not going to be this winter. It's almost like, well, Seamus, there are more winters to come. It's not only this winter. This is a tax that may be with us for quite a while, and it's it's just hitting people at the wrong time. It's hitting people when they're suffering, when they're tired of increases, they're tired of taxes, they're tired of big government, and then they get hit again. So I think the uh, the Grinch Award goes there too. Yeah, the carbon tax issue, I think, is uh, it's too bad we don't have the conversation regarding policy. It's straight up politics with the carbon tax. You know, okay, fine. We're going to get some sort of refund. They say on the federal scheme that you get back 90% of what you pay in carbon tax, but the issue here for many would be the application to home heating fuels. It shouldn't yeah. be a tax on home heating fuels anyway, regardless of where you are in the country. We're a northern country, and we have to heat our homes. We can't change our behavior necessarily. I can get a mini split. I can get a heat pump. I can do whatever, but we still have to heat our homes, and not everyone has the cash to make the transition off of uh, furnace oil. So that exemption should be in place. But well, the, policy, the politics of it, though, Dennis, is what I think irritates me more than anything else. This was straight up an absolute position of the Conservative Party until the Liberals implemented it. Now it's the stupidest thing on the face of the earth. We're not talking policy now. We're simply allowing the politicians to set the stage based on their need for power. Not about what works, not about what's best, not about what we could do or what we should do. It's all about what gets me elected or gets me unelected. It's just... It becomes frustrating because these are important conversations, just like with inflation. We're not talking about what's actually going on. We're talking about who's to blame. And we're not looking outside our own borders for any of those. We're just looking inside the House of Commons. And some of those things, I think, really derails us from maybe getting down to the brass tacks and see what we could do and should do versus what we want our base to think we can do. Yeah, and, you know, it just seems like there's a lack of common sense. Like, it's common sense given the, the, the times we're in and given the uh, cost of living that people are facing day in, day out, given the whole enormous cost of heating their homes, then all of a sudden, bang, people get hit again. And I think that's what's turning a whole lot of people off. You know, and when it comes time for elections, be they provincial or federal, uh, I hope people remember two things. The sugar tax, which is in that same category, and the carbon tax. Now, on to the municipal okay. operating grants. Back, I would think now, about 10 years ago, uh, Minister O'Brien was the minister at the time, and the government of the day actually stripped the municipal operating grants from the seven largest communities in the province. Up until then, everybody shared in the municipal operating grant. I think... During most of my time at City Hall, uh, the grant was, I think it was capped at about $3 million annually. So that disappeared. If you go back even longer, the, the uh, MOG for the City of St. John's was was uh, near around to the $20 million mark per year. And all of that has disappeared, but the key disappearance came back about 10 years ago. And the whole idea was, I remember the meeting took place down at the Jack Byrne Arena. The mayors of uh, the surrounding communities, the, the larger communities, um, and, and some of the smaller ones, just to tell them what was going to happen. And the whole idea was the 
seven largest communities in the province would lose the MOG. And the caveat there was the government would negotiate a new fiscal arrangement with those seven communities. The money that was saved was reapportioned to the remaining communities throughout Newfoundland and Labrador. So right now, the seven largest communities, like, for instance, St. John's and Clarenville and Gander and Cornerbrook and Grand Falls, Windsor and so on, uh, don't receive a nickel in any form from an operating grant. Oh, yes, I know. I remember quite clearly. And inside that top seven, wouldn't that also these days include CBS and Paradise? Yes. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no... I mean, there's a bunch of things on that front, how municipalities get funded. Number one, we should absolutely get more of a portion of the federal tax dollar going to municipalities. That's who provides your day-to-day needs, by and large. You know what I mean. So more federal tax, a bigger chunk of gas tax, and every community should have a municipal operating grant simply based on population. And maybe, you know, factor in some other issues such as... If you are in St. John's, of course, you would be providing services and jobs and access points for a variety of things that other communities surrounding would use. Factor that in because it all goes to the delivery, whether it be the upkeep of roads or anything under the sun. So there's a lot to it, but we're underfunded at the municipal level, which makes no sense because it makes it more costly. Then you add in how they changed the cost, uh, the cost-sharing allocation formula there about a decade ago, which made it more complicated for municipalities. Consequently, things went undone for years, and when you went to do them, it would cost more today, uh, not only because of the price of services and goods or what have you, but the road or whatever deteriorated to the point where you didn't have to patch it, you had to rip it up. So we've kind of got it a bit backwards with municipalities. Yeah, we've really got to sit down and, and uh, analyze or reanalyze the whole method through which municipalities are funded in Newfoundland and Labrador because yep. uh, the city of St. John's, the larger communities, the smaller communities, a whole lot of smaller communities are really suffering when it comes to drinking water and the basics that, that are part of uh, town, city, living in this day and age and the ability of people in these communities to afford the services that they need. Absolutely. We're late for the news, but I appreciate this more at the time this morning, Doc. Thanks, Freddie, and have a Merry Christmas, you and your family, and stay healthy. The very same to you. Take care. Thank you. Alrighty, Bye. Goodbye. All right, there you go. Let's take a break. How are we doing on the telephone, David? Let's get it rolling. Today's the day to get on the show. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Cynthia. You're on the air. Hi. I just wanted to phone in and give you an update. I phoned in November about... uh the commuted value option that's offered by the uh, pension yes. for the government of Newfoundland and Labrador. Right. And you gave me an 888 number. I did. Well, I've constantly been calling that 888 number, and to no avail, nobody answers. I leave a voice message every time I call, and I get no reply. So just so, so folks know what we're talking about, this is the ability to get a lump sum present value of your pension versus the monthly payments that come thereafter. Correct. Okay. So I can't remember which 188 number I gave you. Was it a local provincial government number or was it a different one? I think it's uh, Toronto, Ontario, when I listen to the voice message. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if any of your callers could call in if they went through this and maybe direct me somewhere locally that I can go to. Okay. So what's the, the specific question you're trying to get addressed? Just remind me. 
uh, what's the formula that you can commute to know what your commuted value offer would be. I'm hitting blank walls every time I phone anywhere. Well, maybe the Pensioners Association here uh, provincially could help. Uh, Ralph, I can't remember Ralph's last name at this moment in time. Uh, maybe some of the local investment uh, organizations, whether it be Manulife or like Scotia, Scotia Bank mm-hmm. McLeod or something, because they'd ha- they'd have formulas available. But the Pensioners Association might be able to sort you out. Hold on a second. Okay, I'll uh, go there. Uh, Pensioners Association and El Bang. Uh, the Newfoundland Labrador Public Service of Pensioners Association. Their phone number is seven five four. Just one second now. I got to get a piece of paper. No problem. Seven five four five seven three zero five seven three zero. Okay, thank you very much. I'll call. And Can if I it... address the caller that just called in about Canada Post? Sure. Okay, so this is an FYI. You can buy a box at Canada Post that has a D-defined weight and price, and it's a lot cheaper. Like my sister sent a little tiny gift from Toronto to Newfoundland. Thirty-eight dollars was the postage. But these boxes come in small, medium, and large, and they have a weight associated with them. So you can ship 11 pounds for $35, flat rate. I, first I heard of it. No, no they don't, they don't think they promote it very good because my sister paid 38 to get one small gift sent here. Okay. But if she had to use those boxes, I don't know exactly what the name of them is, she could have picked small, medium, large, and had just... One flat rate and a weight associated with it. Okay, and now what I've been asked to do by David, who just whispered in my headset, is he wants me to put you on hold. He has some further information for you based, I believe, on the uh, commuted value of your pension. Okay, that would be excellent. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care, Cynthia. You too. All right. Bye-bye. All right, Cynthia's on hold for you. David, let's go to line number seven. Say good morning to the PC member for Topsail Paradise. He's the opposition critic for Health and Community Services. That's Paul Din. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? That's bad. Thanks. How about you? Not bad. I uh, I wanted to call in on the uh, on the phone med issue. Uh, while I was in the queue, I was listening to uh, Doctor Luscombe. So so I may not be that long here, but. Uh, can I get you to hold for one second, Paul? Yeah, certainly. Cynthia, if you're still listening, so the organization, I could not remember the name that manages the pensions, is called Provident 10. Can you make sure you get that to her, David? Provident 10 being the go-to? Okay, sorry about that, Paul. I just wanted to get that to Cynthia. No, Patty, you're the master of getting information out. <laughs> you got to do it. Uh, so, uh, you know, when when I read this and, and saw this in the news, I mean, the first thing that jumped out, you know, I was taken back, a bit disappointed with it, actually, in terms of... Uh, the doctors, from the doctor's point of view, as you know, I mean, I've been on your show and I've, I've raised this in the House Assembly many times. I've talked to uh, uh, frontline healthcare workers uh, and their associations over the last little year, year and a bit for, that I've been a health critic. And uh, respect or lack of has always been one of the common threads throughout. And w- when I looked at this, I, uh, I was taken back. I said, wow, you know. Uh, uh, we depend so much on our doctors and our frontline healthcare workers and that to uh, to get us through the pandemic and and now we're trying to retain them and uh, you know this this really does nothing to retain them when you look at this now last uh, evening and yesterday I've been to a few events and uh, I've been inundated with uh, people <laughs> talking about this item and talking about calling 811 now I'm sure 811 uh, does very well 
for for those who get the advice they're they're seeking but but there's others that are not getting the advice or they're put on hold or or they're actually told to go go see a doctor in person you know so so it's uh, questionable as to the success rate of 811 but we do need it it is uh, you know we're moving towards virtual care but this brings me to the issue that I get from doctors who have called me and not just because of this they've called me over the last little while on on things around the uh, cap the cap on you know, virtual care being 40. And I've had others who do uh, home visits who have been in to see me and have questioned the fee codes or, or their fee codes are being questioned in terms of their home visits. You know, if if we're trying to keep our doctors here, I mean, we got to recruit, but we got to retain what we have. We we need to do a little better job. We certainly, our government needs to do a much better job in uh, in communicating with them and, and letting them know. Because I, right now, I don't know why why there's a 40 40 uh, cap on uh, virtual care co- uh, appointments but uh, you know these are things that we need that information out there so that uh, that people can understand and especially our doctors and our frontline healthcare workers can understand why why that's there because i guarantee you there's there's some doctors out there who could see more than 40 and look again it all depends on the type of uh, visit we'll say that happens and uh, you know they're being held back and, and doctors go in I listened to Dr. Luscombe you know when he, he talked about I think he mentioned something about you know not it's not all, all about the money it's about helping the patient and we got to keep the patient's front and center here if a doctor get, hits 40 uh, calls then what do you do for number 41 or 42 you know and we talk about delivering the right care at the right time and uh, this you know this dollar figure that they attach to the 811 calls and then uh, paying half to, to doctors when they do similar calls or similar uh, in, in, in-person in visits, it's really, really out of whack. And it certainly gives no indication that uh, we're a province that wants to have or keep our doctors here. It, it's, uh, you know, I, I was really surprised with it. I don't really understand uh, a lot of issues surrounding virtual care. So in one breath, I'm told to anticipate it being more and more the go-to offering. In the second breath, if you're just practicing virtually, you don't get a license or accredited, as we saw with the doctor who wanted to come to Fargo Island. Then we're told more and more offerings, but yet there's a cap on. So there's a lot of contradictions inside the world of virtual care between the college and the government. I mean, we're due for another conversation with Minister Osborne here in the near future. Got to try to figure that out because you cannot have it both ways. No, that's right. I mean, you know, what? Uh, well, it all goes back to this. You know, we, we waited and waited for the health accord, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a wonderful piece of work. There's no doubt about it. A lot of effort went into that. Uh, and, you know, we were told, wait and wait. Now now we're told, well, you know, it it's, wasn't really a plan. It's it's a, a bunch of recommendations, and, and many of them are very good recommendations. But we've yet to see a particular plan from government in, going forward to deal with the health care. It's all been been a piecemeal, uh, sort of like a, uh, you know, a makeshift uh, a quilt, uh, a patchwork quilt. You know, we see a bit here, a bit here, a bit here, but there doesn't seem to be any coordination here. If you're talking about working with uh, your healthcare workers and your frontline workers and your and respect and and uh, and uh, letting you know letting them feel valued, you know, not letting them feel, but have them feel valued because of uh, because they are. Well, you know, when you put out a contract like this, you would think as a minister. When you see the dollar figure, you could you would predict and see what that's going to cost in terms of issues, and reach out, 
reach out to the uh, medical associate and say, you know, explain this, uh, you know, ahead of time and and develop a plan going forward. Because, it, it you know, when doctors, uh, and I've heard from before this, well before this, you know, the, the feeling of being disrespected, and that, that, that does nothing for for retention, retention nor recruitment. And, you know, much of the stuff we've done, I heard the Premier on the news the other day talking about, jurisdictions are cutting and pasting from us you know that's not that's not totally accurate most of what's been done in this province is being done elsewhere and i have no problem with that you you, you do that and you do one better but we have to be you know the words cr- thrown out are creative and innovation innovative all the time and i guess if you throw them out enough you'll start to believe them but we have to we have to really be more innovative and we have to be more open and speaking with our frontline workers and our professionals and and you know, ahead of time and, and engaging them on what they think should be done or shouldn't be done. And especially with this, when you talk about a contract that based on a dollar figure is, you know, <laughs> our doctors are valued only 50% of what, what, what an 811 line is, call, is, uh, is getting. So, you know, to me, it's uh, something we need to do better. We really need government, really needs to sit down with the doctors and talk to that and really need to get an answer on this, this 40 cap and and fees around home visits, and I'll, I'll say this, Patty, when when we're talking about these call-in numbers like eight one one, I would hope that governments would get a report back on this that outlines the types of calls, the length of calls, because the length of calls will give you a good indication of uh, whether they were actioned or not, and so that we can make uh, better decisions down the road. Fair enough. Uh, I also try to. I'm trying to also factor in the fact that 811 was absolutely necessary. Yep. And when the RFP went out and only one company replied, the question would be, did the government have a choice or should they have gone back to the drawing board, recrafted the RFP, go back out to the market, expand the market reach and see what could be done? Because if we needed it, we needed it. But if we hogtied ourselves by just having one respondent and said, okay, that's it, we have to go with it, all the while knowing that these numbers would eventually be revealed and folks would be worried and the potential for double dipping, like if I call you on one, they tell me to go see a doctor. I just paid 82 plus 37. And there's no way any of that makes any sense. So I'm trying to factor it all into, you know, not only to what I actually think about it in full, about how to approach it with the minister or anybody else. But that's that's a very good point, Patty. That's that's what I said earlier. I said when I when if I were a minister looking at this RFP and I see the dollar figure, the first thing hits you is okay. Well, what are we pay, what are we paying our our professionals here in the province, and what kind of you know what issues does that create, you know, and uh, or or what questions does it raise. Uh, and and right now it seemed like it didn't raise any questions, you know, uh, because the answer we're getting is, oh no, we only got the one bid. Uh, so, so one thing it tells us either either uh, uh, our eight one one calls are overvalued, or our uh, d- doctors uh, what they're paying is is undervalued. And and I I think our doctors uh, you know if we're trying in the situation we're in when it comes to uh, you know a shortage of healthcare workers, I think there's a, a increasing value on our frontline healthcare workers and our doctors, and we really need to start looking at that. But again, I go back, there's very few changes that need to be made. To, uh, one of the quick ones would be, why the 40 cap? 
yeah, I'll try to figure that out. Very quickly, before I run out of time, I also hear you talk about some of the new numbers and the revelations regarding the cyber attack. An additional 31,000-plus are going to be contacted. You say, you know, we don't know who did it. We don't know if there was a ransom. We don't know a lot of stuff. And you talk about transparency. Yeah. My question would be, look, I want the info. I want all the info I can ever get my hands on, my hands or my head on. But I'm not even sure what I'd do with the information if I had it. Let's just say they, they say, well, someone in Russia did it and they wanted $50 million. Then what do we do with that? I think it gives you an understanding, a better, a better understanding that uh, that government is is uh, acting on your behalf, in, in and and there's more information there that they know, and it gives you that that sense of trust, I guess. You know, when I look at the, uh, you know, the Ireland attack as an example, I mean, you can actually Google that. You can go on Wikipedia, and that's that that happened six months prior to ours, and you get a lot more information. You know, uh, and it gives you, uh, you know, that thought of, okay, what they did, who did it, and, 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 and forward. It, it just gives a, a greater sense of confidence uh, to, to the public that government is on this. And they're, uh, you know, they're addressing the issue and they're aware of what's happening. You know, and, and I go back to the, to the point about uh, cyber criminals. You know, we have that credit monitoring and uh, theft protection piece there for two years and some, some get it for five years. But your cyber criminals, you know, <laughs> they, they'll, they'll keep that information for five, days, five years in a day and, and utilize it. So I hope from, from a government point of view as well, that government's reaching out to these people, and they said they are through a letter. But I think they're, uh, they should be offering, okay, advice and guidance as to if you're one of those that had your financial information taken, if you're one of those who have a lot of your personal information taken, they should be reaching out and uh, walking these individuals through what they need to do to protect them going forward, whether it's changing passwords, whether it's changing accounts, whether it's new MCP numbers or whatever. I would hope government is going to be proactive and do something like that, because right now, the lack of information just breeds uh, you know, uncertainty. Appreciate the time this morning, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take All the best. Bye-bye. Paul Din is the PC member for Topsail Paradise. Let's take a break. When we come back, time for you. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Jim, you're on the air. How are you, Patty? I'm okay, Jim. How are you doing? I could be better. Uh, Jim, uh, uh, Patty, I heard uh, on uh, on your program yesterday that uh, people were still dumping garbage uh, close to the houses and all that. Yep. And I, I, I walked where I for about 10 years, Patty. And uh, I'd say, I'd say, I know what you still have. Something garbage. But, Patty, I broke my foot on the job seven or eight years ago. I had Dr. Fury on my surgery. And uh, they told me in the hospital, you're okay, you have Dr. Fury, because it was it was mangled, it was squashed. And he done, and he done a good job. But now, it's, it's, it's not the same way it is. When I walked, drives down the flesh drives down in the in the plate right and I went to Dr. Stone and he come back in in, in my office and he said he said Garfield what do you think I can do with that and the fellow that I was working for before I got in the hospital he come over to the ambulance and he said to me he said don't mention my name and I I didn't mention your name uh, better 
Um, but Patty, uh, I wasn't about. We were dumping asbestos right next to the schools, houses, everywhere we could go. Patty, if I called um, over the Corredoration building, I'd hang him, Patty, but I can't do that. And I asked him for a couple of thousand dollars to cut the, the square up with me foot. And he said, you're not getting no money from me. And I, I think you got an idea who I'm talking about. I, maybe, but, um, okay, I just want to make sure I'm following along in full. So what's the question that you're now asking? I want, I want to know, Patty. Uh, it's about eight years ago, I done that. Can I sue him? Can I can I go back now and sue him, Betty? Sue who? The employer or the doctor? The employer. D- did you get workers' compensation? No. Okay. Generally speaking, there's something called uh, the Limitations Act, and there are exceptions. But the rule of thumb is, if you haven't brought forward the legal action, the civil suit, within two years, you're out of luck. Now. You should indeed speak with an attorney or a plea to see if, if there's any exemptions that suit your particular circumstance. But the rule of thumb is you cannot bring forward a claim after two years have passed. So says that particular piece of legislation. But it does go on to say, you know, the claim is got a bunch of different definitions, whether it be uh, the injury, lost time, any long-term damage, and what that's meant for your ability to earn. So that's all in, covered inside of those those. Po- uh, potential claims, but you really need to get specific advice from a lawyer because the exemptions are hard to understand. It would take a lawyer to answer that question specifically, but generally it's two years. If that's passed, you may indeed be out of luck. Mm. Oh, I'll be out of luck, Petty. Dear, on that part. Well, Petty, uh, I, I, I got turned down by here, Dr. Fury. I, I can't work with Dr. Stone. And my own doctor, even. I'm, I'm finished. I can't work no more. But I, I still can't do nothing better. That's an unfortunate oh, place I, to find I, yourself. Yeah, I know, Patty. I know. And I can't mention no name. I wouldn't do that. Anyway. But, Patty, I just wanted to know. Thank you very much, my old buddy. No problem. You take care of yourself, Jim. You do. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, before we get to the break, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Debbie Wiseman with the Social Justice Co-op. Good morning, Debbie. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. Hi. Um, I just wanted to give you a quick call today to let you know about a fundraiser that we're running. Um, so like you said, I'm from the Social Justice Co-op. We are a member-owned cooperative here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, we take on causes related to the environment and social issues like poverty. So, for example, we just ran a free tax clinic the other day for anyone who needed their taxes done before the end of the year so they can get that $500 check. Um, And we probably helped out close to 50 people that day. Um, And so for our operations, we don't receive any government funding or assistance. We are completely funded by our community with donations and support. And we also keep our expenses really low. So probably 95% 95 of our expenses are our human resources. Um, we have one part-time staff member who's our volunteer coordinator, Leah, who's wonderful. And um, we practice what we preach, and we pay a living wage to our staff plus health insurance. Um, so this is what our fundraiser is being organized around, our human resources expenses. One of our members kindly offered to make holiday cards for us this year for our fundraiser. Um, so we have these handmade holiday cards. They're hand-printed, and they're made from upcycle materials. 
Um, they're about they're ten dollars each, but the more you buy, you get a discount. So, for example, if you bought ten, it'd be um, eight dollars each, so or eighty dollars. Um, and while you're there, you can also donate a little bit more if you want to. Um, and more, you can buy those um, on our website. They're actually available for pickup today, or we can mail them out to you. And our website is sjcnl.ca, and then you just click the link at the top that says store. Terrific. You guys do good work, so it's important that we acknowledge it and do what we can to ensure that you're there to continue the good work in the future. Yes, thank you. Anytime, Debbie. Give the folks the details one more time quickly before we say goodbye. Sure. So they're holiday cards. They're $10 each, and you can go to sjcnl.ca and click the link at the top of the store. Appreciate this. Keep up the good work. Have a nice weekend. You too, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Donald's there. He wants to talk about, he was, his name was actually used in a phone scam. He's curious as to how that happened. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Donald, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Patty, I'm not too bad, thank you. Um, I just thought I'd call in. It's been a while, but uh, I just wanted to share an experience with you and your your audience just to see, you know, I'm sort of flabbergasted with it all, Patty, to be honest with you. So I guess I'll just get into the story here. So I was at work, and uh, my aunt from Ontario called me, and, and she sounded concerned. And she asked me how I was and where I was too. So I assured her that I was fine and I was working, and I asked her why, and she said she received a phone call. They said they were a good friend, that I was taking a friend to the hospital. I got into an accident myself. I was seriously injured and arrested, and they were wondering if she had some money to help me. Now, Patty, in saying that, I have no social media accounts. I don't even own a computer. The only debt I have is on my phone. Okay. And and I'm just wondering now, is there any advice you have for me, like to how to, you know, to prevent this going forward? Like, do I have, do I have to get a new phone, a new number? Do I have to change my email address? Like, I, I I'm start with changing your passwords. Well, Patty, every password that I have associated with anything shows really strong, and I'm thinking. You know, my aunt's in Ontario. Like I said, I don't have any social media, Facebook accounts. I don't own a computer. So I'm just wondering, like, the only way the only way they could have linked myself and my aunt together would be if they had some way of getting into my phone. Or hers. My, 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 uh, my phone numbers. Well, or, or they got, it got to the information through hers, possibly. Yeah, but like I said, now she hasn't been down now. I talk to her once a month. I try to, you know, reach out as often as I can. But, you know, there's there's no other link besides a phone call. I'm not sure what to say. I don't know. Look, for starters, I'm the least tech-savvy person in the world. But I don't know how they would have got or made that link if what you yeah. described to be the limited juice of your phone and social media and the like, so I don't really know how they would would have made that happen. That's what I mean. They would have to have access to my 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 phone numbers and and like that's the only thing I can think of that would link because in in, in my logs 
her name. I, I, I've got her name and an aunt in front of it. But that would be the only link that I could think of them them getting this, you know, to, to associate myself with her. It'd be different if it was here in the province, you know, and I had a Facebook account, but I had none of that. It's only a phone call once a month. Did you ever hear tell of anything like this before? No, I haven't. But now, that being said, I've heard of so much so much in the way of scammed and how people were uh, how they were fooled by something and clicking the wrong link and that kind of stuff. But this one, no, this one I believe is new. Yeah, I'm 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 still a little upset about it to be honest with you, to think that, you know, that's even possible. Try your carrier and see if they can give you a bit more insight because they should know, understand the operations and the the pitfalls or the vulnerabilities that your phone has. And uh, me, I wish I could give you a better answer, but I don't think I can. But I would call my carrier to see if they have any understanding of what may have happened and what I can do to ensure it doesn't happen again. So when you say carrier, you mean the Telus phone? or Bell or Kudo? Yeah, or, okay. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I, I was going to do that. I was going to call the RNC too, but I know there's not a lot they can do about it either. That's why I wanted to call your show. Uh, extend this to yourself and your audience because... You know, if they can do this to me and I'm like, I, I, I don't exist really when it comes to technical stuff. Uh, all I have is an email address, Patty. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to think that they could tap in to call my aunt. You know, she just lost her husband in the last year or so. She's up by herself. And and, and to think that, you know, she, she called me right away and she sounded very upset. I felt really, really bad that she was even associated with this through my information, if that's possible. You know what I mean? I do. I mean, any time anybody has an email account, there's the possibility that someone's going to have a peek therein. But what I would say is uh, I would absolutely call my carrier or provider and see if they have any more information they can share with you and to close down that, that loop or that hole where someone got in. But do that, Donald, and let yeah. me know what happens. I certainly will, Patty. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Take care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Let's go to line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Hi, Mike. Morning, I'm too. How are you? Good morning, Tom. Fine. How about you? Uh, great. Yeah, those phone scams, the phone scams are getting pretty high tech these days, eh? It's nonstop. And uh, someone sent me a screen grab just yesterday. It's a text message that says it's from the government of Newfoundland and Labrador. Click here for your $500 check. And you know that's a scam. Yeah. And the best way to get it out is on your show for sure. Uh, I just had a few quick questions. Um the carbon tax, yeah, uh, the Grinch that the Doc O'Keefe is talking about. Um, what is so? Do, does everybody receive this quarterly check? Yes. Now there's a difference between whether or not you're using furnace oil, but there's an average, and I don't understand the formula in full. But there's a carbon tax applied to gasoline as well. So they do some sort of median average calculation where people get something back in the form of a refund. The numbers that they give out, that's the maximum people can get. So there's the reality is not everybody yeah. gets the same amount. Okay. So, yeah, because I thought, like, so for every liter of fuel, there would be a, probably a basic, like I say, a six cents. And then so so it's based on how much fuel you buy but i think i have like uh, it's pretty uh, is interesting it's hard to figure out i figured like i figured if it was 6 cents per liter no matter what fuel it is so you could average out how many liters of fuel you use per year and if you're getting an annual a quarterly check of 350 or i think that was the maximum that Seamus said 
So I was just if I found out a way if it do benefit you or not, you know. Well, uh, and I, I think I put this question to him specifically because, and I think his response was something like this, is that that would be such an arduous, complicated structure to make sure that whether it be me provide them with bills to prove I consume yeah. X amount of gasoline or diesel or anything else, or yes. they use median consumption rates and they apply a carbon tax rebate uh, based on that. Because can you imagine yeah. the level of bureaucracy would be required for every single one of us to submit our gas receipts? Oh, my God. Yes. Sure. Unreal. The rebate would be gone in a hurry. We'd be paying bureau bureaucrats a million times what it would cost to get the rebate dollar out the door. Yeah, so like they could make it easy and say, "It's going to be six cents a liter." All right, that's fine. That's what you're going to have to pay, and they don't have any idea that, and we're going to give you this amount. So then you could judge how many liters you're using per year, whether it be furnace oil, gas, uh, whatever you know, whatever else, fuel, petroleum fuel. You could you could actually do the math, and they're going to give you 350. If you knew how much you're going to give you, you could say, "Okay, well." You know what happens to the Grinch at the end? His heart grows ten times, right? So you could, you know, is it the Grinch or is it going to be good? You know, and as good for some people, yeah. And as I've admitted to uh, the listeners, whether it be in discussion with Minister O'Regan or others, is that because we haven't lived the, that particular federal scheme, I'm yeah. not so sure anybody 100% understands how it works and where the exemptions lie. For instance, I hear from fish harvesters; we're told they're exempt for their fuel costs. Farmers in uh, Western Canada, for instance, their costs are exempt from the carbon tax regarding their fuel. They use the purple fuel. That's great. Too. We only assume that the farmers here are also going to get that the exact same exemption, which I think they do. Yeah. But how it works for individuals. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it, to be honest with you, Mike, because we haven't lived it. You know, it's easy enough for me to try to read yeah. the formula and read the plan, read the news releases and ask the questions. But until we start seeing the rebate checks come out, well, then, unfortunately, until then, we probably won't know exactly yeah. how this works. I've even talked to my buddies in Alberta uh, uh, who are on the federal scheme. Yeah. They're not even really sure. <laughs> Just another couple quick things, Patty. Sure. Uh, like if it was all that easy, it could be fixed, right? Like the doctors, okay, right? One is getting 82, one is getting 42. Now, come on, right? It's, it's blatantly obvious, right? And it's like the home care workers getting $15 an hour. They should definitely be getting 20 You know, it's so stuff is so easy. But, like, man, like you said, the bureaucracy and the politics makes everything so hard, you know? Yeah, well... Politics is always going to be part and parcel with how we talk about policy and what we think are the rights and the wrongs. But the, rea yes. the reality is some of these issues are not just here, they're everywhere. They're not just Newfoundland Labrador tailor-made problems. They're very similar to other problems and other provinces. And so it becomes a little bit more complicated than people give it credit for. And this is not defending any level of government or any individual party. It's just the facts of the matter. I, if anybody yes. really had all the answers there, we would have heard them by now. Yes, for sure, for sure. Well, I was, it was uh, great talking to you, Patty, my friend. Have a great day. Uh, the very same to you, Mike. Thanks for the call. Right on, buddy. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Here we go. Break time. Let me come back. Paul's in the queue, and all it says on the subject line, he's got a good news story. Excellent. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Good news. Come on. Line number six. Paul, you're on the air. <laughs> good news indeed, my buddy. Howdy, boy. Patty, uh, three weeks ago, <clears throat> you probably remember, there was a young girl called in. She has autism. She's 23. She's trying to find a home for her dog, Teddy, Yeah, because Teddy barks a lot, and uh, she's hoping to get a foster uh, foster parent for the dog. And I'm happy to say somebody's come forward and is fostering the Teddy for Kayla, and they'll be holding the dog until her and her mother can get uh, better accommodations. Fatty? 
Absolutely excellent. We had a couple of people inquire, and I think when they heard about maybe some of the temperament of the dog and the size of the dog, they kind of balked at it, but I'm really pleased to hear now that Teddy has a spot for the next, however long it takes for them to get better housing. Good and stuff. not only that, me buddy, uh, the lady that took the dog, Tick Teddy, has two of her own dogs, and now Teddy has a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's probably why he's happy, I guess. That goes a long way. It's a source of uh, comfort for her because where she does have autism, hey? But she's the sweetest girl in the world, Patty. Uh, you know, I mean, she's got a mean bone in her body. Um, she, she, I mean, she has autism, Patty, but it doesn't slow her down. She goes to darts, bowling. She goes to the Growlers hockey game. And who do you think sits behind her, Patty, at the Growlers hockey game? One of your colleagues, Greg Smith. <laughs> oh, cool. Very good. And she, she always talks about Greg. She loves Greg. She loves you. She loves Dave. She loves everybody. But well, <laughs> you could tell she was a sweetheart, and you could also hear a bit of the quiver in her voice, worried that she wouldn't be able to come up with a place for Teddy, so I'm really pleased to know that that has happened. Yes, me buddy. She was really upset she had to get the poor dog put down, and of course, when she got on like that, it breaks your heart, Patty, but fortunately, thank God, some, through VOCM, somebody has come forward, and Teddy's got a temporary home, and he's got a girlfriend, Teddy. Excellent news. Glad <laughs> okay. to hear it. Okay, me buddy. Thanks for the update. Bye. Okay, bye, Paul. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Tina Davies. You're on the air. Good morning, sweetheart. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. How about you? Pretty good. I'm just I'm making a quick call today to remind everybody of the. Uh, it'll be our 19th annual candlelight vigil to remember those who have died by suicide. It's this Sunday, uh, December 11th, at 3 p.m. at St. Mark's Anglican Church on Logie Bay Road. We talked with Kim not too long ago about this, and oh. of course, you're the horsepower behind Richard's legacy. One of the issues with bring, or not the issues, one of the uh, one of the things being addressed with the vigil is that it brings families together who have suffered a loss of a loved one by suicide, and it's difficult. It's a tough conversation. There's still some stigma and embarrassment associated with it, but you're a shining example of how when you talk about it. It maybe makes you, gives you some cold comfort, maybe find people with similar life circumstance, which can go a long way in the grieving process. So if you don't mind, tell us about Richard, what happened, and how you've built on his legacy with this particular program. Oh, wow, Patty. Well, you know what? Thank you. Uh, today, December 9th, is exactly 27 years since he took his life. And I actually been going through all you you what happens is you get this video in your mind you and you go over everything that that actually happened that day so that's been happening for me this year some years it's okay some years it's not but Richard was 18 he was a month short of his 19th birthday and um, we were going to get our Christmas tree so I got up early and I as I was going out to start my pickup truck now this is in Alberta and it was really really cold I'm talking like minus 30 so, uh, and I could hear his alarm going off and I thought oh that's pretty cool you know we set his alarm to, in order to be up so we can get our tree go and get the Christmas tree and when I came back in from outside the alarm was still going so I ran downstairs and I thought oh my god these teenagers can sleep through anything uh and as I turned the corner, I could see the bathroom door was closed. And so I thought, oh, yeah, okay, he's in the washroom. So I went by, knocked on the door, said, good morning, Richie. And I went in and turned off his alarm. 
And when uh, I didn't hear anything, I knocked again. I kept pounding. I woke up his younger brother, James, who was, uh, his bedroom was on the other side. And he said, what's the matter, Mom? And I said, I, I, I can't get this door open, and I think Richard's in here, and this, he's not answering. So uh, James went and got a coat hanger and opened the door, and, of course, we both found Richard, and he had taken his own life by hanging. Um, and in that instant, uh, my my life, of course, absolutely changed. Uh, and for the next five years, I don't – after that, that was 95, December 9th, 1995. And for the next five years, I don't remember huge chunks of my life, but um, we ended up moving here to Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, and when we got here, there was nothing uh, for people who had lost someone to suicide. And realizing that everyone in this province is, is it's very interrelated, you know, there's a lot of families that are interrelated and I thought oh my god you know with the stats say that one when one person dies by suicide at the very very least uh, it's up to 15 now at the very least they say 15 people are uh, affected so I'm thinking in this province if there's one person that dies by suicide with everyone so close my god I said to Kim I said this whole province has to be walking around in such pain and I know that pain <laughs> so I thought well you know what um, I got strong enough I did a lot of research I a training saw a psychologist a lot of things did a lot of things to rebuild myself and get strong enough and I started a support group and we're still running today we meet uh, a support group for survivors of suicide loss we meet every Monday Monday night at 7.30 p.m. at uh, 878 to Topsail Road in the building, the West End office for LifeWise. That's where my office is. And, um, well, just we do lots of things. I started the foundation to honor him. And I everything I do is to honor him in, in this area. And I, um, it's just part of being a citizen, I think. I think we have to take care of each other. So it's honoring Richard it's helping uh -huh. others does it help you oh absolutely absolutely you know in life we we get back what we give my dear we get back what we give and um, of course it helps me to to know that uh, I can help people to realize that they're not alone in this and and that we can get through it because we never get over it uh, that'll tell you something so I'm sitting here 27 years still going over the events that happened 27 years ago to the day, to the hour. Uh, we do not get over it, but we get through it. And we can have joy in our lives. You know, it's, we can. Life, life is made up of all these moments, you know. Like, you ever sometimes just stop and look around and just for that moment, it, everything is, <sighs> everything is good, you know, just for that moment. Well, those, that's what life's about. It's just moments. So hold on to the good moments and enjoy, you know, uh, but we can, we can get through this kind of, these kinds of tragedies. We can get through, especially knowing we're not alone. 
and it helps to talk about it. it. We need to talk about it. It's important to talk about it. That way, the, when you speak about it, you get out all that crap inside, right? And that leaves that leaves room for good things to come. Thanks for that, Tina. So before we uh, move off to the news, give us some details and uh, what you want people to know about the upcoming vigil. Sure. It's a annual candlelight vigil to remember those who've died by suicide because December is tough for everyone, um, but especially tough if you've lost a loved one to suicide. It's at 3 p.m. this Sunday, December 11th, at St. Mark's Anglican Church on Logie Bay Road. Uh, People who are attending are asked to bring maybe cookies or something like that because we have a little get-together after. If you cannot attend, um, we are live-streaming it on Facebook, on St. Mark's Anglican Church page, So, um, which is wonderful. That's one of the pros of, of COVID is that we had people from all over the world join our vigil. And this year, we actually got, um, working with Jen and Heather over at HMP, we got permission to have the vigil live-streamed into HMP so that the boys there can um, join in. I think it's great, and I know the numbers have grown over the years, and so I appreciate when you or Kim or people make time for the program and to share such personal stories. Uh, I've always appreciated what you've done, not only for me, but for the community, Tina, and I'm glad you called this morning. Thank you very much, Patty. You take care, and have a Merry Christmas if I don't see you before. The very same to you. All right. Bye-bye, Ann. All right. Bye-bye. It's Tina Davies with Richard's Legacy. All right. Uh, let's check with David. How are we doing on the telephone this morning, Dave? Uh, there is an upcoming announcement coming from Minister Cody regarding the cost of living check. Someone just asked me this question on Twitter is, what was the update? Not much. The fact is that 96% of the initial $392,000 cost of living checks have now been mailed out. So if that's the case, that 96% of you should indeed get your monies before Christmas has come and gone. So, of course, you had to have filed your taxes for 2021. And so 96% have been mailed out. There's more information available at the, just Google up one-time cost of living relief. You'll get a link to the government website, but I don't think it offers much more than that. Let's take a break for the news. When we go back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Mike, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. Hey, hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. Good. I, I thought I might call and just speak to the uh, issue that you was, or the caller had recently. There are just two or three calls back about the scam and his aunt in Ontario. Yep. So <clears throat> that particular scam has been, has been around for a while. And uh, it's very unlikely, I, I would say 100% chance, that when they called his aunt, they didn't know the name of the, uh, of the nephew she had in Newfoundland. I, and I had some experience with this from a senior. And the way that they work this is pretty ingenious. They will sort of wiggle the name of somebody out of your family. And uh, in that situation, they may have said your oldest nephew or your youngest nephew. And, and if you're unsuspecting, you would say right away, oh, you mean Patrick, right? And so right away, they, the scammer has a name. And then they can refer... Uh, to to the name of the individual in the rest of the call. So it's really ingenious the way they do it. And so then they will pretend, and with exactly the same situation, whereby uh, it was a lawyer who called, and, uh, you know, the young, your, young, your youngest son, in this case, 
was involved in an accident by taking someone to the hospital. And so he's in, he's in the jail. He's in jail now, and I'm representing him. And in order to move forward, we need, we need some money, you know, like that kind of thing. So it's, uh, that one has been around for a while. So uh, for your caller, uh, I would suspect that, you know, he, has, he doesn't need to worry about his phone. He, he obviously said that he didn't have any other technology. But this is the way they wiggle the name of a family member out of an unsuspecting, uh, you know, person that they're trying to scam. They, there's no end to it. I mean, even something like, and this one was reported to me a couple of times by a couple of different families. They just look at Nanny's Facebook page and they see that she's got a grandson, John, living in Mississauga. And they call her or they connect with her on Facebook direct message and says, Nanny, it's John. I'm hurt and I need $500. So da, 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 da. And next thing you know, Nan wants to help. She loves Johnny. And yeah. then she falls for it. So, you know, I guess the only way we can proceed here is that every time you get an unprovoked or out of nowhere message, the best thing to do is to just write back or call back the person or the company or the entity yourself to ensure you're on the right track. Because we get that pang of worry that, oh, my gosh, I want the help. And you never know if they've got something figured out and they're coming to get you. You just, yeah. just got to be so careful these days. And it's in brutal. This case, yeah, and in this case, that aunt did the right thing by calling him right away. And uh, But his worry was, like, how did they find my number or things like that? Yeah. It's probably very unlikely they actually had his phone number. It's just, it's just the way they operate. But And I agree with you, Patty. Like, you know, personally, if I get a phone call at all that I don't recognize, I mean, I just hang up and, and I'll make a call back to someone I know who's, you know, whatever. And uh, But that's the best defense right now is just to take no calls like that. 100%. You know, when my landline rings, it's either a pollster or a scam. <laughs> That's what it feels like. So I don't even bother. I don't even know why I have a landline anymore. But, of course, you can't even get rid of it without jeopardizing your package with your provider either. So they got well, you where they want you. It's interesting. You probably pay more for getting rid of your landline than keeping it, but that's the way it is. That's good advice, Mike. I'm glad you called. Okay, thanks. And happy uh, Merry Christmas, Patty. The very same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's see here. Let's go. Where am I going here, Dave? Don't really know what the order of business here is this morning. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Brian. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Not too bad. Look, what I want to bring up this morning is somehow, some way, I think we've got to uh, we've got to make the opposition in our in our legislatures work. I don't think they're working. Uh, every time, uh, for example, that a uh, an opposition member, whether it be liberal or PC or NDP or who knows, come on your show or CDC or CTV. You know, all I hear is negative, negative, negative. Like I believe in, the, in my heart and soul that that that, that uh, agreement between whoever and the Newfoundland government in, in Stephenville will die. And I'll tell you why. Because opposition members in the House are always on, t on media, criticizing fury. And uh, I don't know this man, Mr. Ridgely. I don't know him from Adam. But if, if there are people out there who are investing in this process and uh, want to buy into it, and hear the officers and talk about Mr. Ridgely, they, they would throw their money. And I don't know what you, how you're going to help the opposition, 
But I'm going to tell you what the opposition are doing, I, I, and this doesn't have to do with Newfoundland. If you take a look at the, at the uh, voter turnout in the last Ontario election, where Mr. Ford won a, a massive majority, only 40 percent, only 40 percent, I think, of voters turned out. That meant that 60 percent of voters in Ontario didn't turn up, had no use for the election. And I, I, where I wonder, and of course I don't vote, I, I haven't voted since today, it's granted divide in Saskatchewan. I wonder what the numbers would be in Newfoundland. But if, if, the, uh, if people want the, uh, house, the various House of Assemblies to work across Canada, something has to be done about opposition. Because I think Why? all the opposition are doing is turning people like me off from elections. The opposition's role, gonna... opposition's role is critically important. Now, you know, is there space for them to uh, offer a congratulations on something that was positive and had made a positive impact on people's lives? Sure, I suppose, but their role is to keep government's feet to the fire. And if that comes across as negative sometimes, well, that's just nature of the beast inside of politics. But we're never going to see a day where it's all kumbaya and uh, congratulatory inside the proceedings, whether it be House of Commons or the House of Assembly. Are they sometimes unnecessarily critical? I don't know. I'll leave that up to individuals. But they've got a role to play, and it's an important one. Well, when you listen, say, to people phone into your show, and they have been influenced either by opposition members or Fox News or something. You know, I heard a, a lady on the show the other day talking about Trudeau. You know, why, why the guy would, first of all, want to be prime minister is beyond me. Uh, to me, uh, I would, you know, people talk about public service and how great John McCain in the state of a public service. Well, you, you know what, Paddy? I don't give a hoot for public service. Uh, I wouldn't run for politics. I'd have nothing to do with politics. And uh, why? Because I, I, I really think that the opposition, be they Canadian or American, be they PC or Republican, their job is to tear you down. And uh, they, I mean, they were on, on uh, some TV show the other night. They're still tearing down John McCain. Well, John McCain must be dead ten years. Not that long, but it's. I mean, but he's a flashpoint, right? And they know what names work. They know what buzzwords work, and they use them, whether that be through. You know, they have the focus groups and all that kind of stuff, or their own research. They do these things with purpose. Whether or not it's helpful, that's an individual takeaway. But, you know, I don't deny the fact that the opposition has got to do what they think is best to hold government to account. Now, if they go too far on some things, fair enough. Are they too genteel on others? Okay. Do they not take the opportunities when they're presented to say that that's good? That's a good thing. I'm glad it happened. Again, you know, it's there's no one-size-fits-all here in the world of politics, whether it be provincially, federally, Canadian or American or French or English or whatever the case may be. So I know, I think I get your point, but I don't know how things are going to change on that front. I think a bigger issue for me is the antics inside the proceedings of the House of, uh, House of Assembly or the House of Commons. That's worse, you know, than being negative. It's the lack of effort to put into the uh, doing the people's business versus the this personal sniping back and forth, which I find to be the furthest thing from helpful. But opposition is going to oppose because it's right there in the word. Well, I think, you know, Candace 
Pittsburgh. And now I don't know if she's still leader of the opposition or not. No, she's not. Oh. No, it's not. Mr. Polyev. Um, oh, Polyev, yeah. He's a good man. Um, oh. I think he's got new Flanders best interests at heart. Um, but Candace Bernier, when this uh, thing was happening on Parliament Hill, when they were trying to take over the government on Parliament Hill, well. what did she do? She, uh, according to uh, uh, CTV, she emailed all her members in the uh, in the Parliament saying, "How can we blame this on Trudeau?" That's uh, that put. I only listened to that once. And that put on the light in my mind, and saying that this is the job of the, of the opposition. How can we blame this on the premier or the prime minister? Well, what she said uh, particularly was, uh, let's make sure that this is Justin Trudeau's problem, as yeah. opposed to it's his fault. I think there's maybe a slight difference between the two, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, that's what she did, and that's what she said, and that's what she meant. But uh, anywho, Brian, we're off to the break. Hope you have a nice yeah. weekend. God bless you. Have a nice Christmas. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Before we go, uh, some details about the announcement about the $500 cost of living checks. So here's the specific breakdown. I said 96% are out, but here's the more detailed breakdown. And uh, Paul Lane sent me this. I appreciate it, Paul. 96% of the checks for people who filed by mid-June. Checks for people who filed between mid-June to the end of September are not processed yet, but hopefully will be up before Christmas. People who file from October forward will not get the check until the new year. Now you're up to date. Let's take a break. Here we go. We're talking opposition. The opposition critic for justice and public safety is Helen Conway Ottenheimer. She's the PC member for Harbour, Maine. She's next and then you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Harbour, Maine. She's the opposition critic for justice and public safety. That's Helen Conway Ottenheimer. Good morning, Helen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thank you. How about you? I'm doing well, too. Thank you. I'm calling in uh, this morning, Patty, um, um, in response to the Auditor General's report. And, um, you know, first of all, we have to acknowledge that the findings were uh, very disturbing, to say the least. And um, we know that uh, there have been a number of recommendations put in place by the Auditor General, which I'm glad to see that uh, the Department of Justice has accepted and they have uh, they plan on, on taking further actions to implement those recommendations. But I have to say, and I think it's really important that we put this in context, We've had a report, the report in 2018, which was the Gesso report, and that's the Deaths and Custody Review Report. That was very important work that was, um, you know, designed and completed to improve the delivery of services and practices uh, and policies, and it made recommendations with respect to adult custody. Um, that uh, was in 2018. It was accepted. The recommendations were accepted in principle by the Department of Justice at the time, 2019, and it was stated at that time that work was ongoing to address the issues. Now, according to the report of the Auditor General, the Department of Justice um, were finalizing the regulations in February of 2019. Now, Patty, that's almost four years ago. Are, of course, they're very similar issues, but not exactly the same as what the AG is looking at here. This was more about rehabilitation programming, reintegration into society versus some of those issues that led to those deaths inside the penitentiary. I know exactly what you're talking about, but it just goes to show you the glacial pace with which government moves, whether mm -hmm. it be on AG reports or anything else under the sun. 
And, you know, the actually the um, issues were quite similar uh, in the deaths in custody review. Um, and so they, they did look at, for example, the act that was in place and that the Correctional Services Act needed to be uh, proclaimed. They did look at rehabilitative programs and how they were not functioning properly in our adult correction systems. But getting back to, to what the uh, Auditor General has stated in this report is that she could not determine any reason for these delays. So I just want that to be out there, that that is not acceptable, that that we, we need to do better. When we look at the recommendations that have been put in place now by the uh, Auditor General, we see six recommendations because we, we can see from the report the findings were um, really scathing in that, uh, for me, and I think we can conclude from the report that what is, was of most concern was the fact that public safety may be put at risk. So that is, is, has to be a concern, and it has to be important for everyone. Um, you know, so what I'm, I'm calling in for today is really to, first of all, state, yes, there's much work that has to be done by the Department of Justice, but we require justice the Department of Justice and this government to finalize these regulations to expedite it. You know, we need to encourage them to get on it. These, these recommendations have to take a priority, and it's important for everyone, not only for the rehabilitation of inmates, it's also important for the staff, for probation officers, for correctional, service, uh, uh, correctional officers who are employed and trying to deliver these uh, services. It's important to and beneficial to all of our society. So the sooner this gets done, the better. Public safety is a big part of the uh, summary from Denise Hanrahan, the Auditor General, in this most recent report. The Act was last amended back in 2011. Prior to that, it was from the early 70s. Now, Minister Hogan will say that this encompasses 2017 to 2019, and there have been improvements made since. I think the Auditor General uh, accepts that point. But my question is, my questions, inside the correctional officer's world, we know there's a significant problem there with 24-hour shifts and short staff and all of that. And then it's just simply the footprint of the Her Majesty's Penitentiary, which adds to the complications. My question outside the walls is, do we have the human resources available via probation officers or case managers to actually do the work? Because if we're not doing the curfew checks and if we're not doing uh, understanding what the data is that is not compiled, how can you possibly manage a case properly if you don't have all the data? So whether it be knowing who you are, where you are, who you're knocking around with. And it's fine to say we've got electronic monitoring and whatnot, but if we're not doing the curfew checks or we're not following through with court-ordered mandates regarding the released prisoner, how can we possibly do a good job? So is it incompetence, ineptitude, not enough people on staff to do it? I don't know. But all three of those have to be addressed because right now we just have what the outcome was, not what the input was. And, you know, you are so correct in that. And I can even speak to that because I did attend, again, at the um, Her Majesty's Penitentiary this summer on two occasions, first to meet with the staff and then to meet with the inmate committee. Also went out to the um, women's correctional facility. And one of the predominant themes that I did hear uh, in particular was in regards to um, you know, the, the staffing issue. It is a serious problem. There has to be some reworking of the entire model in terms of, um, you know, the staff and getting proper training for staff at the HMP. So that's a very important piece. 
Also, when you point out that um, some of the uh, response or the response of the minister with respect to um, electronic monitoring and that there's some programming in place. And so that was acknowledged by government. But, you know, I, I'm, I don't feel a lot of confidence in that. And I have to, you know, I have to be um, clear about that because the electronic monitoring program, I mean, that was a pilot project. Project in 2020, and that's not we. I mean, that is just not um, you know at full capacity. As well, you know, they refer the bail supervision program. Again, that is uh, not where it should be. So these are some things that that you know the government came back with in response, but really it it does not address. Uh, and it does not give me assurances that since this audit review period of 2019, it doesn't give me assurances that government has really implemented any effective um, uh, programming responses or, um, you know, addressed some of these major concerns. So I'm, I'm worried that these concerns and these problems are still in existence. So what is going to be important is to see, again, government has to expedite this. They have to get on this. I encourage the Minister of Justice to do that as quickly as possible, getting in there with respect to the Correctional Services Act, getting the work done that needs to be done to finalize the regula regulations, because it's important for us to have a modernized, up-to-date uh, you know, piece of legislation. That is fundamental. I mean, we need legislation to address institutional biases that are embedded in our criminal justice system. If we don't have modernized legislation, we don't have the proper, you know, tool there to guide, um, you know, the people that are working and uh, involved in the system. Fair enough. Uh, there's two words that begin with AC and they're vastly different. One is to accept the recommendations. One is to act on the recommendations. And of course, the people, when we talk about corrections, it becomes a confusing conversation for many people in the general public because all of a sudden they think that we're trying to make life cozier for those who are incarcerated. This report is very clearly about public safety. I mean, that is the summary statement from every piece of this uh, body of work is what it means for public safety. So mm -hmm. let's use that as the starting point for discussing this particular topic would be my suggestion for the uh, listeners and the general public because it's not about coddling or cozying up to or playing, uh, playing games with incarcerated prisoners. No, it's about what happens when they get in there, rehabilitation, what happens when they get out or reintegrate, what's not being done to ensure that we know who they are, where they are, what they're up to, who they're associating with, because that all boils back to public safety. So it's let's true. use that as the starting point. It's so true what you're saying, because the offender who is rehabilitated is not going to be a threat to our society. So we have to, we really have to recognize the importance of rehabilitation and proper programming. And what is that about? That is about education. It's about uh, making uh, people break that cycle of violence, whether it's, you know, gender-based violence, so that they understand um, what uh, is causing, uh, you know, the, the decisions and the choices that they make. So we need to, it's, it's very fundamental. An offender who's rehabilitated is not a threat to our society. So it's really incumbent upon us to recognize that. And inappropriate re rehabilitation, I mean, the, uh, the Auditor General said that uh, herself, that it may result in an increased risk to offend. So, uh, you know, we have, we have everything we need here in this report. We've had other reports, but this, this has really got to be an eye-opener, a wake-up call for government to now act on this. We need to make sure our society is protected and it's safe. 
And if we don't do that, uh, you know, I, I've, I'm concerned about what the outcome will be. Appreciate the time, Helen. And uh, Patty, just one further thing. I know I, I, I don't want to take up too much time, but there was a call that you had yesterday uh, regarding personal care attendance. And could I have a moment just to speak on that? Because I think you were interested in in uh, finding out our, our view on that as well. It was from uh, one of my constituents, I believe. Okay, just a moment. Go ahead. Okay, personal care attendance. Uh, we've had a couple of calls come in from constituents who are working, uh, they're private home care workers, and basically what they're asking for is to understand why they receive $2 less an hour uh, than their colleagues who are working uh, as private home care workers in agencies. So we've had a, a number of uh, calls on this, and so we have, and, and along with um, my shadow minister, uh, Paul Din for health. Uh, we've we've been exploring this with government, and we're waiting to get a response back to find out from the Department of Health to get more information and clarification why there's a difference in pay for some. Uh, for the same work when both, uh, you know, these workers are paid by in, uh, Eastern Health. So why is there a, dispar- a disparity? You know, we need an explanation and rationale. So when we get that, we'll certainly provide that update. But I think it's really important because we're getting a number of calls about it, and uh, it's really not clear as to what the explanation is. So we're waiting to hear back from the Department of Health on that. Appreciate the time, Helen. Have a nice weekend. And I just wanted to wish you and your family a good Christmas, a healthy New Year, as well as the constituents in the district of Harbour, Maine. The very same to you and yours. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Helen Conway Attenheimer is the PC member for Harbour, Maine and the opposition critic for Justice and Public Safety. Very quickly, I've been told many times, and thank you for the feedback, is that there's some ads or music uh, playing after the commercial breaks, under the, the first call after the break. Engineers are aware we're working on it, and hopefully that will be resolved ASAP. Break for the news when we come back. Lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Karen, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. This is Karen Reed calling from Springdale. Yes, ma'am. I was scammed last night for $10,000. What happened? Sorry, I'm upset. I'm sorry you are. I'm sorry to hear that. What happened? Yeah, I got a call saying it was BMO, Bank of Montreal, and they said that uh, um, there was a lot of charges from Amazon, and I told them, I said, look, I said, I have never, ever hoarded nothing from Amazon or any any company like that. And he said... Uh, he said, there's a lot of this going around, he said. So he said, you know, we'd like to do what we can to put a stop to it. So he started answering me questions and everything, and I answered them. And I gave him my account number. And it just went from that. Okay. So have you connected with your bank or your credit card provider or anyone like yes. that to see if there's any coverage yes, I, available? I've been talking to the police. I called the police. I called the main branch of BMO, and I've been talking to them. So right now, there's not much else I can do. I mean, I'm only a senior citizen by myself, and I find it very hard. I don't know if there's anything can be done about it or not. 
I'm not sure if you know, the financial institution is going to be able to offer some sort of coverage for you. I don't know. But no. it's a real shame that it happened to you, and I'm really sorry to hear that because that's a lot of money to be separated it is. from. It's what I was saving up for my kids with some, if something happened, you know. I understand. I mean, I've been widowed for three years, and it's been it's been really hard trying to scrape a bit of money together. Let me know. Now. Let me know what happens with uh, whatever the bank may or may not be able to do for you, and we'll take it from there. How does that work for you, Karen? Okay, let me know, and I'm really sorry to hear this. You take a deep breath and see what BMO has to say, and then let me know, and we'll go from there. Okay. Okay, Karen. Take, take care. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's see. Let's go. Opera on the Avalon on line number five. Good morning, Cheryl Hickman. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks. How about you? I'm, you know what, that poor lady, oh, I, you, there's a special place in the, you know where for people who do that and prey on seniors like that. My heart goes out to her. That's a fact. Yeah, uh, I'm calling on a, a happier note. Um, we were part of, or happy to be part of a uh, initiative with Shani Ganook. Uh I know you know Roger Monder, um, David Howells, and a filmmaker out west, Drew Kennedy. And, and by out west, I mean Cornerbrook. And uh, we decided to join with our friends at Easter Seals to do a special performance of the Dermot O'Reilly song, The Children's Winter, with all proceeds going to Easter Seals. So if people have a moment and they want to, um, you know, get a bit of Christmas cheer, we encourage them to view the video. They can text ES Winter to the number 888-597-2477, and all of the proceeds from their donations will go to Easter Seals. Excellent. I didn't have my pen close enough to write that number down, so eight eight is all I got. What's the rest yeah, of it? So it's, it's I'll go again, Patty. So all the all you have to do is text E S as in Easter Seal. Yep. So E S Winter to triple eight five nine seven two four seven seven, and it's an easy process. You can donate whatever you like, and of course, all of the proceeds go to Easter Seals. And and of course, Easter Seals, their mission is to engage, uh, inspire, and maximize the opportunities for people with disabilities of all ages, and they provide really meaningful programs and services. I was lucky enough yesterday to go to their Celebrate the Season, uh, where Shani Ganuk performed with participants, and it's amazing. It's amazing to watch the music they make and how it changes lives and, and how that organization really changes the lives of, of people in this province. And, of course, Easter Seals Canada is celebrating their 100th anniversary this year, and we're happy to play a, a, a you know a small part into hoping to raise funds for that really, really valuable organization in our province. Yeah, they do incredible work. And, they're you know, building that inclusive park, accessible, accessible park, and other programs that they offer up on... Mount Sire. Mount Sire Road. Road. How, yep. did I, how could I not come up with that? So how did Opera and the Avalon get involved? So we, every year, we try to um, do some initiatives with other civic organizations. And uh, so, you know, we've worked before with the uh, Autism Newfoundland and Labrador, community food sharing, single parents. And last year, actually, I attended the luncheon. I'd never gone before. And I thought, boy, is this ever an amazing event. And so we always try to pick a couple of organizations to help fundraise for, even though we're a charity ourselves. 
um, you know, we really feel that giving back um, all times of the year is important, but especially during the holiday season. So we came together with, you know, Roger and Dave and Drew and thought, um, what could we do that could raise funds? And of course, Chris Andrews and Shani Ganook came to mind and we all got together last week and, and taped the video and, uh, and that's what you see now. So, you know, we, we really think uh, without community that, that we're nothing and the more we can uh, help raise awareness, raise funds, uh, the better off all of us are. So while we may, our, you know, our main thing is to do theater and music and opera, um, community is everything and the, and the more we can do to help the happier we are i'll be happy to share it on my social media feed and if you'd like to make a contribution you simply text es winter to the number 888-597-2477 i have it on hand if you didn't have a chance to jot it down thanks for this and bravo for your involvement uh, cheryl thanks for, thank you very much Thank you, Patty. Happy holidays to you and yours. And uh, I wish everyone a happy holidays. And uh, if you can give, you know, $5 goes a long way. Small steps make big changes. So thank you to everyone and to all your listeners. And, and have a great weekend. Same to you, Cheryl. Take care. Thanks. Bye, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Cheryl Hickman with Opera on the Avalon. I will share that. And if you are inclined and have the capacity, a donation would be most welcome. Final break of the morning and the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show, and where'd you say I'm going, Dave, or Fonz? I'm going to go right here, line number three. Rob, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you? Doing okay, how you doing? Happy Friday to you. Yes, sir, thanks, same to you. Uh, and now, listen, I just, I've got a, a few issues there, but uh, I just wanted to talk about that, that the home care issue. Okay. Um, so, we moved back from out west a couple of years ago to look after... My mother-in-law, who was, who was down with cancer, she's gone now, rest her soul. Um, but now we're looking after an 87-year-old man. And, you know, what they give is, you know, we got we, three hours a day, we get a little bit of uh, care. And, but the thing is, like, he needs 24-7 care. So why can't, my wife look after her him in the house that he's been in for over 25 years um she's not his biological daughter and they consider that you know just she's not his daughter and um they're saying that his dementia is not a a disease and we've been trying to get health care. And, like, you know, Jill could, she could work at the house and care for him because the care, like, we've had a couple people in. He'd, he's not comfortable with other people. You know, um, you're more comfortable with family in your own home. And, um, but the, the, they just will not sit there and say, Okay, we'll pay you to do that. It's a, it's it's pretty frustrating because she can't go out to work because she's got to look after him. And so, what's the need? What's the ask? The the, the ask is is so that they'll they'll pay a healthcare worker three hours a day or thirty seven or thirty five hours a week or something like that. To, to come in and, you know, the man's not comfortable with with another 
person around that he's not comfortable with. And uh, the, the the ask is is why why cannot they pay her to look after him instead of hiring another person coming out? Fair question. We've got to figure out home care. You know, there's been a, a lot of attention given to this one issue regarding a lady named Denise Champion and yes. her home care worker and home care hours and the rate of pay and, you know, the comparison to co- what it costs to be in your own home versus in a facility like a long-term care. So this is as old as the Health Accord or former Premier Dunderdale talking about being able to pay people to be primary caregivers inside the own home who are not formal home care staff. They're the loved one. They're the people that the other person is most comfortable with and the surroundings that are most familiar to them. So... To answer your question, I don't know, but I do know that this is going to become more and more prevalent, and we got to figure it out. Yeah, because you know, like you know, for them to say that um, you know she is not his daughter, not biologically, no, but her mother was with this man for you know thirty years. Um, you know, every year we come home, we we you know we looked after them. They you know, it, it's just. It's just a travesty, I think. It certainly makes life unnecessarily difficult. It does. It does. So where do you turn from here? Well, this is the whole thing. Like, we came back. Like I said, we, we left our jobs out west. Um, you know, we, we you know, um, the missus tried uh, some, you know, in, in-house phone stuff like that. But that's just, it just doesn't work. Um, the man needs 24-hour care, and I've just been—I've been out of work now, well, in and out. But I've just been described with—I don't know if you know tinnitus. I do. Ringing in your ears, yeah. Yeah. So I got that 24/7. So I get—you know—if I get an hour of sleep a night, I'm good. That's about all I can handle. So I've got the issue here now. I now I've started, you know a therapy program with one of your sponsors. Um, but it's not easy, and it's all coming out of our pocket. We've got no private health care or anything like that. So it's it's all coming out of our pocket, which we don't have a whole lot of. And so it's just it's very frustrating for us because dealing with government, um, they just they don't have answers. They just put you off to somebody else. And it's just, it's just very frustrating that, you know, because we could lose the house that he's living in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and just that little bit of, you know, she could be there 24-7, which, which, which are pretty much, and um, look after him with that little bit of extra income. I wish I could point you in a direction that would get you some satisfactory answers immediately, but I don't think that person or office actually exists at this moment in time. Uh, and would you like to say anything else, Rob, before I take one more call? No, 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 that's it, Patty. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go on that, and, uh, you know, you, you have a great Christmas, and, and happy happy Christmas to everybody. The same to you, and I wish you, you and your family well. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, one, Mike, you're on the air. Hello? Hi, Mike. Yes, Patty, how are you today? Doing okay, Mike. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Well, Patty, this uh, call is prompted 
by the gentleman that called in uh, saying that his aunt was almost scammed. Uh, yesterday, I won $850,000. <laughs> did you now? Yes, I did. <laughs> Are you going to get any of it? I don't think so. No, I don't imagine. But anyway, this was a call uh, for uh, Reader's Digest in association with the uh, Publisher's Clearinghouse. Right. Who told me that I'd won uh, $850,000, uh, asked me a bunch of questions. Uh, uh, how did I want to pay? Did I want to do it publicly with cameras and all this, or privately? And I said, well, I don't want to do I don't want cameras. I want to do it privately because if, I, if everybody knows about it, people are going to come looking for the money. Well, anyway, we went on and on and on. And uh, it finally came down to the fact that they wanted uh, $7,500 oh, yeah. for an authorization number so they, they could bring an extra $10,000 across the border from the U.S. into Canada. Uh, anyway, I said, uh, well, I really didn't want to pay that. Uh, I said, well, can I pay Revenue Canada directly? So they gave me a number and uh, a department name, and uh, I waited, 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 and they called me back, <laughs> which I knew they would. So that's when I, I told them that, uh, you know, you can bring uh, $9,999 across the board with no problem. So, you know, take a book out and bring the, bring the rest across. And that didn't go over well. <laughs> but, uh, then I hold you could bring $100,000 across if you wanted to declare it and have a regional reservation. That didn't go over well. So anyway, eventually, after about three-quarters of an hour, they hung up on me. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to... Uh, uh, bring it to your attention and to your listeners' attention so that uh, other people, if they get the call, will realize it's a scam. Yeah, it absolutely is. If it sounds too good to be true, it always is. Mike, I appreciate the heads up and the public service announcement this morning. <laughs> okay, buddy. Take good care. Have a good Christmas. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Last word, of course, goes to line number four. Jessica Holmes, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Before we run out of time, go right ahead. Very quickly, um, I own a bar in Bay Bowls called Arbor. Uh, we are hosting free Santa Claus photos tomorrow and Sunday from 10 a.m. till 4 p.m. Uh, just to take a little bit of the financial pressure off families this time of year. Um, so everyone's welcome. Uh, it is first come, first serve. Uh, we won't be able to print photos on site, but we will print them uh, and have them available for pickup uh, during the week next week. Terrific gesture. And, of course, it's going to be a big hit. And I guess you're able to deal with the the liquor rights and be able to welcome in the minors to get sit on Santa's knee? Yes, as long as they're accompanied uh, by a family member, like a parent or a legal guardian, um, they're, we have a lounge license, so uh, they're allowed in our establishment until 8.30, as long as they're accompanied with their parent. Terrific. This is a great idea. The where and when's one more time, Jessica. Uh, Arbor in Bay Bowls. The address is One Island Cove Road. Uh, takes place tomorrow and Sunday, December uh, 11th and 12th. Is that right? Or 10th and 11th, sorry. Yep. Uh, from 10 a.m. till 4 p.m. 
Congratulations. Thank you, and Merry Christmas to you and yours. Thank you. Happy holidays. You too, Jessica. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. That was indeed the last word, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.